This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. guys and gals and welcome to chapter tactics your 40k podcast which focuses on playing warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game i'm your host pd pob and we're going to get rid of the awkward introductions because mr jeff and sean are here today howdy howdy hello today's topic is going to be about deciding which units to choose for your army uh Basically, what do you want out of a specific unit for your army list? Uh, points, what they do, battlefield roles, uh, what do you need specifically when building your list? Also, we're going to talk about some of our favorite units and their roles uh, and get into kind of the nitty-gritty of, of game design and concepts um, in 40k and balance. Uh, so there's more to it than just picking the best possible point-for-point point unit. Um, because if it were that, then we would all be running the same exact units over and over and over, which is simply just not the case, considering how diverse 8th edition is now. Um, so I thought it, it would be really cool to talk about game design and balance. Uh, and, and just we come from such a wide you know, background of games, right? Jeff obviously does StarCraft. Um, we all play games. Uh, I played multiple games. Sean does huge RPG elements. And basically, if you play a game, game design is one of the most important elements of it. Uh, just beyond balancing and and being competitive. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. It's always a topic I've wanted to get into. Before we get to that, though, we've got some announcements. First and foremost, check out In the Finest Hour, Episode 17, Part Deuce, on FrontlineGaming.org. Uh, Mr. Sean, Josh, and Mrs. Shalen, Miss Shalen, uh, are putting out a great podcast. I love it. I'm looking forward to it every week. Uh, and Tempo is, as something Brandon Grant has said multiple times uh, whenever he's been on is one of the biggest you know I, I guess aspects of competitive 40k and just competition in general um so it's a really great topic uh definitely suggest you check it out um i have unfortunately have not had the chance to listen to it yet but sean do you want to give everyone a little teaser uh it it really comes down to the idea that like the when battles happen and how they happen is kind of the fundament of the game. Like, if you can choose when the fights are occurring and choose the fights you want, uh, then you're going to win most of the time. Uh, anyone who plays uh, any sort of assault-based army certainly realizes that. If you get the charges you want, the opponent doesn't, it's it's going to be your game. Right. <clears throat> so, highly recommend checking that out. It's only an hour long. Definitely not as long as this podcast goes sometimes. <laughs> if you love 40k and competitive 40k and get into the nitty gritty, check that out. Also, Shadow Spear. It's out. It's official. I think people love the Space Marines. The Chaos Space Marines, their models are pretty cool. 
Um, despite, <laughs> nice despite, deflection. <laughs> the, despite the mixed results, uh, we're still going to give away a Shadow Sphere box for March to one lucky patron. So if you're interested in that and you want to win the Shadow Sphere box and you also want to support the podcast, go to pa- patreon.com slash chapter tactics, where at the end of the month, April the first Monday of April, we will announce the winner, and you could possibly be winner. The last person was just a guy who signed up for five dollars, you know, at the end of February. So he just signed in, and boom, he got a a, a sanguineous Forge World model. So I'm gonna try and do one of these giveaways every month. This month it's gonna be Shadow Spear. Next month, I don't know. I do have a castle, and it's beautifully painted that might get nerfed <laughs> soon. So I might be looking to get rid of that. Probably not. But anyways. Uh, finally, the Wednesday special live cast that I recorded last week with Skari uh, went off as a success, although we still don't have the audio file completely cleaned up for that. Uh, there were some growing pains with recording it live through Discord, but overall, it, w- it was a huge success. Uh, we talked about being competitive in 40k on a budget, where you buy models, how do you buy models, resources that you can take. It was a really good episode, and we also got some live uh, audience members from both Scardcast and Chapter Tactics to ask us questions live, kind of like what you would expect out of a radio show, right? So that they're callers. It was a lot of fun. Um, we had a lot of interesting conversations, uh, and overall, I really enjoyed it. If you want to sign up for patrons, you also get to ask us questions that we will answer at the end of every episode. So check that out. All right, game design. One brief note on it before we go on. Uh, any unit improvements we talk about here, uh, if we talk about improving units or specific battlefield rules, are going to be addressed from a game design and balance perspective. Meaning that we're not going to simply say scouts will get better with 20, you know, assault, 20 strength a bajillion shots, right? And making them cost one point. Like we, we understand that you can make every unit better by giving it more shots, making it cost less points, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's important to fiat the idea of uh, GW wants to create a balanced game with good game design that people want to play. So when we when we talk about specifically increasing units and making them better playable, like Terminators or whatever, uh, we're not we're going to go beyond just simply making them OP by cutting their points in half, essentially. Um, so if you're going to go into the comment section and kind of complain about us, you know, saying Terminator points should be cut in half or they should have a one-up armor save, like, sorry, that's not what we're trying to do. Yeah. All right. I, oh, I was just going to say, like, cutting the points on a unit is actually the least interesting and in a lot of cases one of the least effective ways of making it better. Um, the game design is usually much more complicated than that. So just, like, cutting a unit's points in half sometimes doesn't even help because the problem is not its points cost. Uh, and other times just makes it completely broken, which really defeats the point of trying to balance the unit. And as a slight aside, not to get too far off on tangent, because I agree with everything you said, but uh, I think Admex is a really good example of mm-hmm. cutting points and making them certainly more competitive, but not really fixing the issues with the army as a whole. So it's like a Band-Aid, but a shitty Band-Aid, one that still has, like your brother used it, and then he he pulled it off and gave it to you, and it's like, here. You're like, okay. <laughs> And I, I actually, I really enjoy it when a game goes out of its way to create and design a rule that's thematic that also fixes a problem in the game, mm-hmm. right? I, I absolutely love that. Um, the Games don't do it very well often. Uh, it's very, very difficult to do. Um, but when you get a game, you know, where someone just 
hotfixes something with a specific rule. I like the boots on the ground rule that GW put out. Very, very simple and elegant way to kind of nerf flyers. And it makes perfect sense. A flyer is not going to sit around, especially a jet, Eldar jet zooming at a billion miles an hour. They're <laughs> not going to be able to sit down and watch that objective on the ground. Uh, you're going to need boots on the ground to hold the objective. So that's just a, a quick example of a really simple, elegant uh, game mechanic that GW added that I think, you know, they probably could do a little bit more of other than just hot fixes and dirty band-aids. <laughs> uh, all right. So before we do that, uh, I want you guys to kind of get a feel for how, basically, how we look at things preference, like how, how we personally look at things for our own armies and our own personal preferences and play styles. Um, I think it's important to kind of get a feel for the three of us as players when we talk about list design and our unit design, uh, because we're probably going to have different opinions. Um, once you get out of the simple logistics, X is X is better because Y, or, you know, or whatever, and get into kind of the nitty gritty and and uh, opinionated stuff. Um, I think it's important that you get to know each of us as players. So we're going to talk about personal preferences first, and I'm going to open this question to Sean or Jeff, whoever wants to answer it. But what do you personally look for in units uh, beyond the most efficient point for point models, and how do your play styles affect those decisions? Uh, Jeff, do you want to take this or do you want me to go? What is it, Pablo? What are you asking? So <laughs> how, how do you, what do you personally look for in a unit? So let's say tomorrow GW releases a brand new kick-ass codex and you're like, oh my God, uh, you know, it's a faction I've never heard of, a bunch of units I've never heard of. What units are you going to immediately gravitate towards and what are you going to look for? Um, so not to be difficult, and I do think I'll get around to answering it kind of the way you want, <laughs> but I feel like this question's extremely broad. Like, I don't, whenever I approach an army, I don't go, well, let me crunch the numbers because that's going to define the role that I want. I think a interesting example would be like, um, obliterators as they just came out, right? They're 115 points versus whatever the fuck they were before. Um, and a lot of people kind of instantly snap or like, well, I, that's it can't ever use those that's the worst thing i've ever seen in my life it's like and then you ask the person like well how much do you think they should cost like i don't know five ten points less um i I never really identify with that too much because i feel like while certainly the units we like we could have them less expensive i look at more the stat line and role that they perform within that army which is different for each army as well and Mm -hmm. this is where the question gets mega broad for me but I, i do feel like it's worth mentioning I really do not want Warhammer to ever, ever be linear across the armies, almost in any way, shape, or form. Like, I, there's actually, I won't name names, but there's been discussions behind closed doors where people will use the example of, like, an Eldar can ca- an Elder Psyker can cast Guide, and this is how easy it is for that Psyker. Why is it so hard for Prescience to go off, or for this power that's basically the equivalent? Why shouldn't it be exactly the same? And I abhor that logic, I really do, because I think a lot of the flavor that's in the game is found in the stat line, and it's found in the performance of the unit. I think an Eldar Psyker should perform better, and I don't necessarily, and this is the other thing too, I don't necessarily want it to, to cost 15-20 more points because it performs better, because that to me is a way of masking the linearity, if that's even a word, of yeah. um, the game. Like I, I, Obviously there has to be a balance in there, so don't get me wrong, you don't like... You don't make a Farseer 42 points and just be like, well, that's just it. It's just Eldar. Like, obviously, that doesn't make sense. But I wouldn't like it if there was a point value for performance. And then there was, like, a, an easy comparison across all the armies. 
Yeah. So that's a huge concept I just introduced, and I'll let you guys talk, because like I said, it's well, not answering your question. I, I actually think that's a really good point. It's something a lot of people do forget. All armies shouldn't be equal on all fronts. Uh, like like Jeff was saying, like an Eldar Psyker should probably be better than an Imperial Guard Psyker, because yes. that's thematically what they're supposed to be. Um, you don't want to see Tau be just as good in close combat as Orcs. You don't want to see Custodes to be able to bring a Horde army that is just as effective as Imperial Guard. Uh, none of that makes sense. It removes the flavor from the armies and it removes all the sort of feeling and interest from them. Um, that is unfortunately something that has happened kind of with 8th edition is we've seen armies become more similar to each other because they're able to ally with each other very freely. Um, I do appreciate the concept of allies, but I think that can sometimes be detrimental. Um, but within the context of individual codexes, uh, you want them each to be good at some things and bad at some things. That's how you in part balance a game yeah so so to to be fair to gw i feel like they've done some things right and they've done some things wrong in, in this particular topic uh like for example the raven guard alpha legion you, you know that styges that that kind of ta uh, faction tactic where they're all generically minus one to hit and they also outside of 12 inches they also get like an infiltrate roll of some kind i feel like that's that's a little cookie cutter you could probably yep. mix that up but they did really, really well with what I liked at the Gene Stair Cult Codex, with Agents of Vect versus a plan a thousand years in the making or whatever. <laughs> so Sorry. I don't even know the name of that. It's something like that. It's the the Gene Stair Cult Vect is what I call it. But the point is, is that it, both of those stratagems functionally do the same thing, but play out differently in that the Vect stratagem is more command points, um, but it can be used repeatedly, whereas the Gene Stair Cult stratagem is once per game but three command points and i think flavorfully it makes a lot of sense too right you have vect you have his agents they're constantly you know sneaking across the battlefield disrupting plans and then you have this gene circle stratagem where they, they've been building up this one fall foil to your grand plan you know a hundred years in the making or whatever it's called uh and then boom it happens but th there's no room for error there, there's no flexibility there it's only once per game Right, and boom, it just happens. Oh, there so. is room for flexibility, Pablo. It could <laughs> fail. <laughs> well, if you've got six limbs, Jeff, there, there's always room for possibility, flexibility. No, it's... And possibility. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> um, so, so to that point, uh, I, I do think that GW, there's certain point, there's certain elements that GW should really, you know, look into and maybe make things differently, but I think they're doing an okay job. Um, and, and like we mentioned before, it's really hard. It's, it's not easy. But also... Um, I agree with you, but notice the newer codexes are getting away from that. Okay? Yes. So, like, yeah. the Alpha Legion, Stygies, all that stuff. Uh, I would even say the earlier Psychic Trees were all fairly, like, this gives you plus one to hit. This one is a Smite mm. replacement. This one does... Like, it was kind of like that. Yeah. Bro, I, I mean, I don't agree with the Phobos-only power, but, like, literally the one where you take information out of someone's head and it gives you a command point. That's yeah. so thematically awesome for what that detachment's supposed to be. It's just an example, but mm -hmm. they're moving tremendously in the right direction. So mm -hmm. the issue you brought up, I agree, but it's almost non-existent because they've kind of learned from that moving forward. Yeah, yeah, and, and if you remember at the beginning of 8th edition, um, when when we first got introduced to stratagems, I, I was preaching that, that stratagems are going to be great for the game because it gives them so much more design space. And I think I think they're kind of flexing their design muscles a little, like with the Assassin Codex mm -hmm. that came out too. Like it's I I agree, Jeff. I think they're getting a lot mm -hmm. better at it. 
they are, you know, benefit of experience and all that. Uh, yep. they've ha- they know what they can do and what doesn't work. All right. So we're full circle, Jeff. Specifically, when you're looking at a codex and you know exactly what it's supposed to do, what its role is yeah. in, in, in the 40K, you know, uh, environment, um, what do you look for in that codex specifically then now that you know what it's meant to do, what that faction is supposed to do? Yep. So I, I'm going to answer this brutally honestly, and this is I think this does set me apart from a lot of competitive players, but I think it's also something we all have fairly in common. And then I'm going to give the schoolboy good answer that I think you're going for, but it is also <laughs> it's they're both honest, they're both true. Good. I collect armies and I go into a codex for myself off the rule of cool. I have never collected an army or started an army because I was like this army is going to be competitively awesome and very good. It's just always been the models the fluff or it's something I've always wanted uh, like in the way of custodies and I've just been and I get sold that way so very recently we can talk as much as you want about this because I have a full erection at all times about it um, the chaos space marine stuff that's coming out the black legion abaddon the obliterators the greater possessed all that I am extremely excited about those models they look incredible so I'm starting that army mm-hmm. that's just it um, mm. but for example in the past gene circle tyranids admech um, knights to a certain extent, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I went into it because I, I just was completely enamored with the army. Now, that being said, the schoolboy answer to your question, the like, what do you look for from that point forward? For me, you cannot, and obviously this is hyperbolic, but it's somewhat true. I don't think you can really have a successful eighth and even in seventh to a certain extent, this was true as well. Although, I, well, anyways, I, get, I digress. Uh, you need backfield presence, so a lot of times your army's success is going to be based off of some of the more boring in, uh, units in that role, right? So this is going to be your, like, if you can ally in the infamous, uh, you know, guard detachment for custodians or something like that, cool. If you're Gene Circle, what's going to sit in the back and not get deep struck in, and how is it going to reliably function in the game for you? Etc. Uh, Etc. Et there's there's not really an army that is meant to just completely abandon its own backfield and fly forward, but that doesn't mean that that role is just like expendable and you give it to whatever. There's uh, there's different ways to utilize that and to make use of it. And I personally like obviously durability there, but I also like support roles. So I, I love counter charge. I love psychers, um, and I do love long range shooting. And that's something that if you look at any of my lists, there's going to be an element or two of that somewhere in there. I'm never all out aggression, like a turn one alpha strike or turn two alpha strike or anything like that. Um, I like to have absolute board presence. And then for me, specifically as someone that plays in the ITC meta, the second thing I look for in a codex that is something that apps, and this is not a guarantee in all codexes, but you need to have, you can call it board presence. I call it reach out and touch. There has to be the ability to go grab an objective or to dig somebody out of an entrenched position that you otherwise couldn't get to. And that's why Hmm. most of my armies are almost never gun lines um, because I feel like that's always, because I think one of the worst experiences you can have in Warhammer is to hit a matchup where you travel there or whatever. And you're just like, Oh, I just don't have the answer for that. So I guess I'm Hmm. playing from like an extreme behind situation or if it's a good general, maybe there's just not much you could do at all except for, you know, weird extreme dice that you shouldn't count on. So when I played Admech, Back in the day when it was Warcon, that's why I had the Librarius Conclave. That's why I was summoning is because I wanted to summon Screamers or Demons or something to get out there because Admech itself as a codex really lacks the ability to do that. Um, 
Rust Stalkers are even worse now. Infiltrators don't have staying power. So yes, they can go out and do it for a turn, but once they die, are you asking your Castellans to shoot through cover behind a wall? That's tough. Mm. Yeah. All right, so those Sean? are two big rules. Um, I definitely come at it from a different perspective than Jeff does overall. Um, I certainly love the models in the game, and I obviously I, I won't play uh models that I don't at least enjoy the look of to some point. Uh, but I do a lot of conversions and stuff like that. So the visual appeal of a faction is not necessarily what draws me into a faction initially. Um, it typically is an interesting mechanic or something like that uh, that will pull me in the for the for the beginning levels at least. Um, and I do tend to play fairly shooting heavy armies. Um, it's not exclusively it, but I like that ability to pick and choose your targets and kind of uh, do what you want to do on a given turn rather than having your actions dictated for you by range mm. and other factors. Um, and especially very reliable shooting. Anything with rerolls built in or factions that can get rerolls fairly easily. Um, things that aren't depending on a lot of, you know, 2d6 shots for 1d6 damage each kind of effects. Um, I, I just don't like that because it always feels really bad when, you know, it's like, I get 2d6 shots. Oh, that's three. Oh, that's okay. All three of them got through. Oh, I did four damage because I rolled one, one, two. Um, that That is a really bad feeling for me. I do not enjoy it very much, so I try to avoid things with a large level of randomness in them. Um, if something like the Orc Codex, like a shock attack gun, the shock attack gun is really good, but I don't like it because it's too unreliable. Hmm. Okay. Uh. It and I think I think you come at it with a bit more of a. And I'm not saying Jeff isn't competitive, but I think you come at it with a little bit more of like a calculated, competitive mindset. Oh, Sean? for sure, yeah. Um, um, like I said, the rules are often what initially draws me to a faction, which is not to say I don't like the lore and models of factions. Like I agree with Jeff, the new Black Legion stuff looks amazing. Uh, it's super cool. You know, like the only reason I own Emperor's Children is because they're a really neat army. Um, but a big part of that is also because they are mechanically do interesting things, not just that I like guys with rock and roll guitars. So, so if there was an army hypothetically that that was designed to be efficient um, and lethal, but in close combat, um, would that be something you would also gravitate to? Was it specifically the idea of shooting, keeping space between you and your opponent, and and kind of lowering that variance? Um. I prefer shooting too close combat because it gives you more options, but that's not to say I won't play and I don't like close combat armies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that a lot of GW's design philosophy with them tends to mean that if you're playing a close combat army, you have fewer options. You you tend to be more limited in what you can do in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um I think one of my strengths as a player is sort of like doing that like target priority breakdown of like, I need to shoot this, I need to do apply this much firepower here. And that's not nearly as much a part of the game in terms of like melee. Like in melee, you charge what you can charge because it's the only thing in front of you. Um, whereas when shooting, like you potentially have every unit on the battlefield in your sights. Um, so you have a lot more decision trees to go down. So not necessarily as a counterpoint, but what I would say, and I'm sure Sean will agree with this, but I think a lot of the cleverness, especially in 8th edition, 
is represented in the assault and charge phase, though. Like, oh, absolutely. Tri-pointing models, yeah. getting, uh, like, making them not overwatch. A lot of the stratagems that are a little bit more on the tricky of nature uh, mm-hmm. or powerful do take place in that phase as well. So, for instance, a good, you know, a good friend of all of ours, but Frankie, uh, a player who's had some success in the past and is a very good player, he's incredible in the in the charge and assault phase. And you can see that kind of shine through and really show off his skill. And that's not to say you can't do that in the shooting phase. Uh, certainly target priority is like one of the absolute base determining factors as to whether or not someone's good at this game or not. Um, but when someone pulls off a really, really good charge, positions very, very well, and then like locks in a unit, and instead of using their base weapons, they use, or the, instead of using their weapons, they use like their base strength to actually let that unit survive and hold them in place. Mm-hmm. That's when you have that like, ah, damn kind of moment where like this guy's really good as opposed mm-hmm. to yeah, three riptides, three broadsides, just hammering your face in, and you're like, this guy. It doesn't feel good. It feels uh, feels like I got clobbered. Yeah, I would. I would certainly agree. I think that the charge phase has more finesse to it, and almost inarguably, in eighth edition, is where the very blessed best players in the game shine. Mm-hmm. Um, you see people using those charge and pile in movements in ways that are incredibly creative and clever. Um, and I would say that probably does take a higher level of skill, but it's not necessarily something I'm as good at, and I try to play mm-hmm. to my strengths in that respect. Mm. So this is super interesting because when I first started, and and I've always I've always prided myself in any game I play. Um, with having like an answer to everything and being you know being able to control any element on the board that I can. Um, so when I look at armies and kind of like what I gravitate towards and what I build my collection to is a combination of mobility and and reaching out and be, having every part of being being able to access any part of the board uh, and characters uh, because I in mm-hmm. my opinion historically characters have always been point for point the most efficient single things you can put in one spot. Uh, you know, mostly depending on the character, right? Like you've got like your Smash Captains, your Calgars, you know, your Gillimans who can hold kind of like a whole quarter of a board by themselves, or, or get inside buildings and answer single units. Um, so when I when I build competitive lists, that's kind of always what I gear my competitive lists towards. Um, for example, my my warps my warp company back in seventh edition was was thirty warp spiders in a battle company, and it didn't have a lot of shooting. Um. But it covered the entire board, and it had a lot of trickiness and mobility, uh, and could answer most things. Um, so I would, I would rather pick a unit uh, for its mobility than anything else. Like it could have the worst shooting in the world, but if it's fast and it can answer specific niche things, uh, then then I love it. You, even if it's not necessarily the best, most efficient unit. Hmm. Um, I think and, mobility is often very under and under, underestimated by players. It's actually yeah. super important. Yeah. My my dream is to one day win a game of 40k without uh, shooting or assaulting a single thing. <laughs> I know I know it's impossible, um, but my dream is to one day just outplay my opponent with movement. I, I think that that if they ever made an army like that, where you had to be absolutely on point with all of your movement, they did. Uh, Death card. Ah, yeah. you know what? You're right. Death Guard right. Nurgle I do not, Demons. I do not play. I do not play Death Guard. Do not play Nurgle Demons. But but you're you're absolutely right about that. Um, they don't really have the heroes. I guess they do. I, I really should. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Every single <laughs> they literally there. kill like five models a game, man. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, they're not probably not as flashy for my you know my taste, but <laughs> but I think I'll, I'll give them a shot. I'll give them a shot, Jeff, because you're absolutely right. Um, I also like the Imperium, like the the characters. Imperium. 
<laughs> yeah, that's my that's my dog saying, "Get out of here, Pablo." Just play chaos already. Um, okay, so so moving on to uh, the next part of the discussion, uh, what are some of your favorite game mechanics? Just real quick, what you absolutely love. Are we talking like rules or something like specific uh, so, rules so, or so game mechanics? Um, you can use rules, but uh, I would define a rule in this case as uh, something specific that that's intended to be in the game for niche things and specific things instead of like a broader evergreen rule. Why don't you give us an example? Because I don't, I'm not uh, sure I know what you're looking for here. Sure, sure. So uh, the, for example, rapid fire two, um, just the idea of of weapons mm. having more shots in X ranges is always a game mechanic that I've really liked, like the rapid fire mechanic. Okay. Um, so uh, things like that. Uh, also, a- another mechanic I really, really like um, is the idea of uh, buffing your armor save on um, just anything. Just the saves, mm. not necessarily not necessarily um, going too overboard, uh, but being able to alter saves on any units, your opponents or your own, um, I've always really liked personally as a game mechanic too. It's kind of broad, but for me, I actually really, really enjoy the psychic phase. Um, hmm. I feel like the game is like fairly set in people's minds, but then when you enter the psychic phase, there's a lot of randomness that happens there, and it's a lot of power that alters the game on turn-to-turn basis, which I really enjoy because it makes it exciting and it makes it... But because every psychic power is like not an absolute given to go off, there's also a gambler element to it. Mm-hmm. obviously some elements have more than others like you know eldar have a lot of safeguards so stuff's going to go off but we all also know that in any given game and probably in most given games several powers don't or there's a couple perils and they already use their reroll and like it's it's just a very exciting fun phase for me um now that being said there is going to be like necron players listening or probably tau <laughs> and they're gonna be like that's not fun at all it's a really shitty phase and i get that um and that's why i would also say most of my armies like I play Custodes, that's my that's my main army. It doesn't have any psychers, but they have a lot of fun psychic defense, and I usually ally in something like a Grya, Admech, or um, Guard, or something like that. So I usually have some say in that. And now every Imperium army is going to leave open eighty five points so that they can also have some say there as well. Um, so I just really enjoy that mechanic, that phase. Yeah, and I think th- I think there's a little bit of unused design space in there on GW's part because the the one of my favorite game mechanics is also the on a four plus you just get rid of a power or you stop a power uh and, and very few factions have actually have access to that um but i think you could definitely make something like that for necrons or tau uh in a larger capacity uh that maybe shores up some of those weaknesses um maybe orcs too to an extent but orcs have a pretty good psychic phase so yeah now. i i would actually kind of to tag on to that um you know, I already mentioned like re-rolls and sort of reliability enhancement. I think that's something that I do really like is I like being able to make sure my army does what I want it to each turn, uh, which is one of the reasons I kind of shy away from the psychic phase, uh, sort of the opposite of Jeff there. Um, but I do like what he mentioned and what Pablo mentioned, um, abilities that allow you to participate in a phase even if you're not normally doing so in the standard way. Uh, the the four-up shutdown of power uh, things are a really good example of that. It's like, it's not a psychic power, it's not a denial, but it allows you to participate in the psychic phase still, even with factions that are not themselves psychic. Um, and things like the Calexus's aura um, and stuff like that... Um, 
or, uh, you know, abilities that uh, trigger in the movement phase, like the, the Tau Relic that lets you uh, make a, uh, a movement immediately after shooting, sort of in place of your assault, um, or the, the Riptide's ability to make an assault move even if it doesn't an assault. It's like, it is still participating in that phase, but it is not in the normal fashion. I think that can introduce a lot of interesting elements to the game uh, by making use of the core mechanics, but in a different way. Hmm. Hmm. Another one I really like, um, and I almost wish there was more of this, I really enjoy, uh, and this is kind of specific, but I enjoy that some factions and armies and races have, um, like, post-deployment redeploy stuff. Oh, yeah. I know that that's, like, not the most popular, because it's certainly not the most powerful, but I guess along those lines, various different mechanics that make your opponents think, or if they're not mm-hmm. aware of it, punish them for not thinking, I suppose. Yeah. Um, that's a really fun thing that's that's pretty unique to Warhammer, and I think it's done fairly well, too, because it's... The game can very easily get broken down into, I shoot you, or I hit you, or, you know, your guy dies, and that's the game. But there's so much we always talk about in deployment. We talk about um, the various different, you know, movement, like something you were just talking about. You wanted to play a game where you don't kill anything, and you went off of just out-finessing your opponent in movement. The game offers those things, and I really enjoy when uh, an army takes advantage of a mechanic that's non-lethal but tricky like that. Yeah, and the Genestar cult have something, right? Like that where, where they, you hide your units and, and your opponents don't know what, what the unit is until they until you move them or, or attack with them or something blips like that? Blips are kind of that way. And then there's a strategy where you get three extra blips and they can or cannot be units. See, that's amazing. Right. I yeah. want more of that. Yeah, I think those kind of uh, deployment abilities, because good players can often like sort of win the game at deployment, where like the way you deploy can be affect the game progress so heavily from the outset that like your opponent is fighting uphill um and that kind of mechanic rewarding that kind of careful thought and understanding of the back and forth of how the game is going to go i think is very good yeah it, and i i definitely think there's more design space that that gw could definitely open up here um like for example space marines they could maybe you could spend two command points and just have a drop pod come in on turn mm-hmm. one or three command hmm. point probably be a three command point thing. You know, just something yeah. just something simple like that or uh, you know, give Tyranids the ability to burrow a unit. So you just you know, you just I mean, put a unit they... back into deep strike reserve. Um, oh, okay. So I was gonna say you deploy, I mean, they so you have get, like, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but if you have like thirty gaunts that you set up and you don't like the way your opponent's deployed, you can just be like, Okay, uh, I burrow this unit. Maybe if you wanna keep it fluffy, you can have like a burrow like a um whatever the heck, a trigon with them or something, right? I don't mm-hmm. know. But, but, you know, just more stuff like that. Little things like that. I agree, Jeff. I think redeployment stratagems is is definitely a game mechanic that I would love to see more of as well. I think another one I would actually like to see is reserves that are not the same as every other reserve. Um, because in, in 8th edition, we have this standard, you show up from reserves, you have to be 9 inches away from anything. That's how it is for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and units that break that rule in limited ways, such as the Calidus Assassin... Uh, some of the Gene Stealer cult abilities, stuff like that, I think can add a lot of interest. Uh, Absolutely. Like if you if you have a unit that you know can come out of reserve turn one, but it can't show up within eighteen inches of the enemy, what does that mean for the game? Um, what about what a if... unit that shows up one has to show up within one inch of an enemy unit? Yeah, uh, sort of an old Death Leaper mechanic. 
um, stuff like that. Like, reserves are a very powerful part of the game, um, and it's one that um, I don't feel like they have explored a lot because they're being a little bit too conservative, and I kind of understand why, uh, but I would like to see, you know, even just one little thing in, in a given codex that is like, okay, here's a different kind of reserve, um, because I feel we've all gotten a little complacent about nine inches is nine inches, and it's always the same. Hmm. Hundred percent agreed, and I would say um, that I'm enjoying the Phobos stuff. Is kind of moving in that direction. Oh, yeah. Like that's supposed to be a vanguard yes. force. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be doing tricky, interesting things, and that's exactly what um, it looks like they are going to do. And that's fun, right? Like it would yeah. be lame if they were just like these guys all have rapid fire six, strength five, minus one, one damage, and they just it's like okay, they show up and they shoot. But instead, mm-hmm. there's smoke grenades, and there's can't land here within twelve, and there's you know, character sniping abilities and like stuff like that. I'm really enjoying that. I think uh, yeah. more of that is welcome. Oh yeah. The, the, f- whatever you may say, <laughs> whatever you may say about the the Phobos sort of like mechanically and how you know well tuned they are to be good or bad units, they are at the very least interesting and different from everything we've seen so far. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they're getting more so. You can definitely say tell that they're yeah. ramping up. It's almost like they, they brought on some intelligent, you know, people <laughs> to help them out, it, you know, since the, the original Morneval years ago. I'm not <laughs> calling them unintelligent, but, you know, the more people you add in, imagine the more diverse you'll get with your codexes, and that's just a theory. But like Sean said, too, experience. Um, I would not yeah. I would not take all the credit to the people they brought on. Like, GW itself is getting a lot better. It's, it's just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Oh, did you want to say something else? Well, no, no. Okay. Uh, so r- real quick, and then we'll jump into battlefield roles, uh, and I think what people mainly came here for. Um, what's what's a f- unit that you love, like a unit design or unit that you love, that you would what would you do to make it better, but like an outside of the box way? So, hmm. um, uh, f- for me. Um, I guess I'll start if you give you guys some time to think. Uh, I would really like uh, to see like a Space Marine Captain or or equivalent of just just come back to being like a Swiss Army knife. Um, maybe you can increase the points a little bit to to you know to pay for the versatility you'll get out of it. But I really think a Space Marine Captain you know needs to be something beyond just a Smash Captain and then nothing else, right? So I, I wish you could give them like maybe an assault cannon or uh, <clears throat> a sniper rifle, like what the Phobos Marines have, you know, just something, mm-hmm. some generic, you know, Swiss army knife, fully customizable, customizable HQ choice. doesn't have to be a captain, but I just love to see that for space Marines. Um, and I think that if GW designed it really well, um, I think you would get some really interesting space Marine lists other than just the generic smash captain or your 70 point dude who just buffs guys. Uh, Cause that's what yeah. it feels like right now. So it feels like everyone's running. Well, unfortunately, they don't like to give characters very many shooting options in most cases. It's a real um, shame. It it is. It I feel like it is kind of a, a wasted opportunity in a lot of op- cases. But yeah, for my part, um, I mean, my specific love in this case is the piranha, the little Tau light skimmer. Um, but there are a lot of other light vehicles that are in that same place that I feel like. If they could make them a little bit 
tougher in a different way, like give them that sort of like dodge invulnerable save or maybe like a minus one to hit or some kind of like you can't assault me rule unless you have fly or something else. Um, because those vehicles are not really in a very good place right now. And I think that the game does kind of miss that like light mobile support firepower element. Um, so I think something something to make them just a little bit harder to kill in a way that is not just more wounds, more armor save, more whatever. Um, just increasing their raw statistics just makes them a, a different rhino. Um, but so, something to make them survivable in a different way. And, and I kind of agree with you. I agree with you, Sean, here. And their fast attack units do feel like some of the weakest options, in my opinion, just across codex wise or, or 40k wise. Um, like land speeders are are kind of meh. Um, like yeah. you said, piranhas. But one f- option I really liked that kind of fits that mold um, was what the custodes have, which was that little one hundred point palace? skimmer. What, what's it called, Jeff? It's P A L L A S. So palace. Your guess is mine, but I call it palace. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, the the palace skimmer. It's it's a hundred points, right, Jeff? Yep. Okay, it's it's a hundred points. It's it's really tough for what you would expect out of a skimmer. It has okay shootings, but it's fast. Um, and, and it has the fly keyword, so it's really good at like move blocking, um, mm-hmm. getting somewhere you need to go. It has gravitic backwash, which is a very interesting oh, yeah. thing. So yeah. you're talking about non-lethal cool abilities. If you target it for a charge, you're at minus two to charge, which synergizes with the Tanglefoot really well. Yeah. But then it rewards positioning, right? So if you block off space or you sit on objective or someone was counting on getting that charge off, these are the things that manipulate the game in a fun way that's not just like, you take a mortal on a six. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that would actually be a pretty good example. Um, another one that is kind of similar are the um, uh, the Chicken Walkers from Admech. I feel Chickens. actually are in a pretty good design place overall. You know, they've got that built-in minus one. They're tough enough that you can't just sort of laugh them off, but they're cheap enough that you can take multiple of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like those units are end up being much better designed than a lot of the other sort of like vipers, piranhas, land speeders, stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, and I think GDB needs to take a bit of a cue from those other vehicles to kind of differentiate. It's like just having fewer wounds and lower toughness doesn't make it like an effective light platform. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this segment, by the way, we could take a week. Yeah, you're right. I've got right. my complaints, so, but I, I will break it down to two. <laughs> my two biggest ones first it is a goddamn travesty what belisarius call is in seventh edition versus eighth edition <laughs> in seventh edition he had decent invul great save yeah he, he would just heal he was he was just a bitch to kill and that's kind of his thing he had a five up feel no pain re-rollable he had or you roll two dice or whatever it was it was just flavorful mm-hmm. and different yeah, it wasn't re-rollable. It was uh, that you rolled two dice, and if either one was a five, he was good to go. Yeah. Um, he felt like he was really hard to kill, and then if you got close to him, his custom gun, the Solar Atomizer, would fuck you up. It would fuck you up. It was a pretty cool gun. And then in close combat, he was uh, not obviously the scariest of things, but the Mechindrids were just more interesting, and then he also could wield that axe fairly de- decently. So he was, he felt like a cool super magos like right he felt like he felt like a a guy that has been spending thousands of years building his robot body and was some kind of badass 
which is something that is part of the lore, by the way. Like every time you, almost every time you encounter a decent tech priest in the in the books, they're not like beep boop. I've got a, I've got a pistol like pampio, and then you like shoot him in the head and he dies. <laughs> They've got weird, freaky shit, and they and they feel about as grim, dark as it could possibly get. And I do not feel like that's represented in the Admet Codex at all. So obviously, Call is the biggest uh, to me offender, but. Give me three other name tech priests. Give me a different variant on the Dominus. Give me Forge World characters that are super interesting because the Admech universe is that's that's what they are. They're a weirdly specialized, super grim, dark, fun army. And then as it translates in eighth uh, and, and in seventh too, it's not like seventh was this utopian existence. It's just like, what does he have? Uh, he also has this other weapon you see elsewhere in the Codex. Okay, what's an engine seer got? He's carrying an axe as well. Okay, what's his sidearm? It's it's a it's a pistol thing. <laughs> it's just like none of that. There is not a single person with a mechanically enhanced uh, genitalia unit or anything like that, any kind of replacement that is feeling anything when they do that. They're like, well, yeah, that's my engine seer. I, I mean, I I think it would be like imagine like a special assassin hq model like a, a ranger and they have that in the lore they have all kinds of stuff like that and i would and hopefully in the next pass on edmech that's the kind of thing i want i want my i want my engine seers and dominuses to be templates allow me to spend 100 points on upgrades on it if i if i must i want my opponent to be like what does that thing have and it's just this weird amalgamation of abilities and then i want call to be really hard to kill really hard to kill and i and uh that to me also synergizes well with what the codex misses right because how many times do your cataphrons or your castellans get tagged and the advent players just like cool i hope i allied in something to deal with this uh or i have electro priests that are at my gun line for some reason which i can't afford to do because then i'm just in my corner you know it's like anyways make call interesting again now, the other one should come as no shock to anyone, and this is, again, probably a victim of it being an early codex. But the Swarm Lord? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, it's cool that they reduced the points. That's fun. His move again ability is part of that non-lethal, super amazing ability, so I'm not hating on that. He's good. The Swarm Lord's good. He's in almost every Terranid codex, or, uh, list, right? Like, he's obviously very good. But his whole thing is that he learns every time he's reincarnated, and he's just a monster in close combat. And as it is right now, he's okay in close combat, but in no way, shape, or form does anyone go like, oh my god, it's the Swarm Lord. You know, I cannot deal with that. Especially since he can be targeted, and he's just a, defensively, he's just a Hive Tyrant. Only he's on the ground. Um, I He gives no rerolls. He has, like, no uniqueness to him other than uh, his Bone Sabers are slightly more scary than everything else. When the Swarmlord rolls his attacks and he rolls two ones, you know what gets asked every single time? 100% of the time? You're a does, does he get the reroll? And you, <laughs> you look at them and you go, no. Yeah. He doesn't. And it's every single time. And they're like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, half my army gives rerolls to all my guys. And I'm like, I know. I'm <laughs> so, tearing it, though. I, there are certain. Okay. Go ahead, Sean. 
Oh, I was just going to say, it did really weird me out that they removed so much of the Swarm Lord's close combat stuff from 7th to 8th. Because he used to be like, you got to re-roll invulns against his weapons in close combat, and, yes. you know, they yeah, caused instant death. death and other kinds of stuff. And it's like, they're actually pretty hard-hitting weapons when they get through, but with everybody and their brother carrying a 3-up invuln, they just never do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, he just I, never I, makes it there is the thing, right? Like, yeah, that He also. is good. But here's the other thing, too. He degrades. So it's like the, the most hilarious combination of, like, I don't know. And there is other units that hit it out of the park. Um, I would say even, like, the Lord of Skulls is really, really funny uh, in that, like, the more mm. wounds it takes, the more dangerous it gets because it's getting angrier. Right. In um, pre-7th edition, like, 6th and 5th edition, you used to be able to psychically enhance the Swarmlord, and then he became a monster. I'm no, I'm okay with that kind of mechanic. Like, if you don't want to just give him a raw, ridiculous stat line, fine. But I want the I want the ability to turn my Swarmlord to something that's like a centerpiece. He's supposed to be the general of Terranids. Like, he when he shows up, Marnius Calgar knows shit's going down, right? Like, it's supposed yeah. to be really important as it is right now. He uh, fucking slaps a unit of Genesters on the ass and then dies. Yeah. <laughs> Tyranids are weirdly lackluster in close combat, and they have been for a long time. Like, they're supposed to be very scary, and they often are not, which is, always feels strange to me, because GW uh, is like, the Carnifex is so good! It's like, no, the Carnifex is kind of a pile of ass. And you know what? I'm going to disagree a little bit, Sean. But well, before it, you do, really? make it flavorful, by the way. So, like, sure. yeah. Carnifexes, let's say they, they go into a frenzy when they die on a 4+, plus, so then they explode and do D3 morals to everyone in close to them. Like, give them something interesting. They're, they're hitting on 4+, pluses. they're tough 6, they have a 3-up save. They're garbage. Like, they, they should be 20 points cheaper, they should explode, they should do some weird stuff, there should be stratums where it makes them hit on 2s or 3s like everybody else because they're heightened synapse focused or whatever, you know, like, cool stuff like that. They do hit on 3s on the charge at least, but, yeah, what like, a, yeah. What if you gave them on a 4-up once they come back with one wound when they die that's it maybe uh, anything flavorful yeah, stuff or something there's uh, there's lots of ways to do it and like i don't think we need to dive into like okay how do we fix yeah. tyranids <laughs> that's uh, another because episode. that's that's well that's an that's an incredibly complicated question it's yeah. like game design just is but um i i think that a lot of players feel that like tyranid monstrous creatures don't actually feel scary um and the swarm lord is the 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 main example of that because that's the one everyone sees but like generally speaking you kind of like you look at a tyranny monsters creature stat line you're kind of like that's it really it it hits on threes and wounds on threes and it's got three attacks yeah uh, and no invuln really yeah I, I mean i agree with you outside of outside of gene stealers the tyranny codex is, is lackluster in close combat um uh, and and there's definitely room for improvement, especially on the monster side. Um, yeah. All right. So we got all those personal preferences out of the way. Let's talk about battlefield rules. Mm. Um, get a little bit narrower. Um, I, I basically I want to talk about um, breaking down battlefield rules and and how we prefer them to play out and what we look at as a successful like heavy support slot or troop slot. Uh, and Jeff alluded to this earlier in the podcast when he talked about um, a codex having a backfield unit and he didn't say this but but i was thinking it the entire time and and typically that backfield unit that you want is it should be a troop choice right yeah. because you, you want them not only to hold your backfield but you want enough of uh, enough options of them you want them to be durable and you want them to be able to move up the board and take objectives in the middle of the board uh and you kind of want them to be your bread and butter um 
and I, I think I want to look at certain armies with bad troop choices and then armies with amazing troop choices. Uh, and I think right now in eighth edition, I think a lot of armies have good solid troop choices. Um, I, I know there's some armies that I'm looking at you gray knight players. Uh, <laughs> I know there's some armies that just, just have awful troop choices and I get it. And that's part of the reason why those codexes are struggling. Um, but let's dive into why, what makes a success, a successful troop choice. Um, and, and first and foremost, the horde troop choices. Those are, I think those are the most successful ones. And, and do you guys agree or not? Um, I mean, 8th edition rewards hordes and massed bodies a lot, so I think they're kind of successful by default. Um, but that's not necessarily a function of design, per se. Um, um, I, I think there are a couple qualities that I at least look for in a troop choice for a codex. Um, and perhaps it's a little bit different for you guys, but it's like, for me, like a successful troop choice, A, should be representative of the rest of the codex. Like, you know, you, you want your, your core troop choice to sort of give you an idea what the other units are going to be capable of. Um, so, you know, if you're a shooting codex, your core troop choice would probably be good at shooting. If you're a melee codex, it should probably be good at melee. If you're very resilient, your troop choice should be itself resilient. Um, I also think that troop choices that do something unique is a big thing. Um, unsuccessful troop choices like the tactical marine are oh. in a lot of cases bad because they don't do anything that other units don't do better like what does a tactical marine have that you can't get out of another slot nothing absolutely nothing um and then third off i think the the other thing i look for is some level of customizability um it's not universally true but i think that troop choices that give you some amount of options are good um because it allows you to push your army in a particular direction you're almost always going to include them so having some ability to make choices there i think is really big for me hmm. so, so jeff you run you run the custodian guard uh, yep. And they're clearly a troop choice, and uh, you know you praise them all the time, and they're a really good troop choice. Um, they're, I don't, I don't think they fit into the horde mode or the heavily customized mode. Um, they're pretty much the backbone of your custodians army. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think more armies should have troop choices like the custodians guard, uh, the custodians guard, or, or what basically what makes them so special? And and um, should armies have them? Other armies have similar things. Yeah, they're very unique. Um, again, it kind of goes a little bit to the fluff bunny to me, I guess, that they're extremely thematic, right? Like, they, they, GW hit it out of the park with the Custodes Codex. Like, they play like Custodes. They're really hard to kill. If they get in close combat, they're going to wallop you. They do everything everybody else does just a little bit better. Like, every time I play my opponent, they're like, don't they move five inches? No, they move six. They, they, do, they have interesting shooting. It's like a really weird stat line. You know, strength mm -hmm. four, minus one, two damage. Rapid fire one, range 24. Like, it's just... It's just across the board, they feel very thematic. Um, but I think, to me, one of the biggest selling points for Kasodi, uh Battalion, which, by the way, 3x3, three three, 468 points, um, <laughs> is going to be, and this is a little bit to what Sean was saying, their customization. So they, Custody Infantry, which, you know, again, if you're filling out a battalion and these guys have other utility, that's great. They, I would say almost solely the Tanglefoot Grenade. It's an incredible yeah. stratagem, and it's it's unique to them. And if your list, and this is getting less true as time goes on, but back in the day, most of the meat and potatoes of custodies was bikes, right? Like just tons of 
Virtus Praetors uh, coming in, blowing your face off, and then charging and killing what's left. Um, they don't have this stratagem. So it's a, it's a big, big deal to be able to, to again, in a non-lethal way, impact your opponent in something that they were counting on. Um, and that makes them, for me, a, an absolute mainstay. It's range 12. It affects just about everything. Actually, it affects everything that doesn't have the fly keyword. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just an incredibly powerful tool. Yeah. And and they do have a couple different setups you can put them in, depending on exactly what you're looking for, which I think is another thing that makes them potentially valuable in my eyes. Yeah, the shield, right? So if they get a 3++ plus plus in bowl, yeah. that is another way where you take a unit where they're like, that's a that's a tough unit to kill, but with a 3++, plus plus, you're relying on things like plasma and last cans and stuff like that to get through them, but all of a sudden they can't, or it's less reliable, right? So it's... Mm-hmm. It just changes the dynamic of that unit, and it allows you to use that. So when I put three Custodian Guard on an objective, it's mine. You're you're probably not taking it unless you're dedicating a tremendous amount, especially if it's in cover, right? If that objective's in cover and they're touching that terrain, um, yeah. you're talking about a one-up save, four-up invul unit with nine wounds at tough five. There's not much in this game that chews through that in one volley. Um, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Right. So one thing I look for um, when I'm picking troop choices for my unit, my army specifically, is I, I look for a unit that can take out my opponent's baseline infantry troop choices, T3, T4 models, um, efficiently. Uh, and, and oftentimes, like, guard do an amazing job at that with their, with their uh, the mortars that they can take, you know, their rapid fire, their mobility, the Katachan, plus one attacks, ton of options. Uh, Coltis also do, also do an amazing job of that as well. Um but I also look for a unit that doesn't that's reasonably durable and doesn't give my opponent a reason to shoot at it, so it sticks around until the end of the game. Um, so I think that's what makes a successful troop choice. Obviously, troop choices have different, in my opinion, um, troop choices have different things that they can do. Hormigants, they're really fast. They've got the six-inch consolidate, which is absolutely insane in certain scenarios. It can just absolutely be game-winning, especially because they're, they're fearless. Right, no right but they're, they're not backfield. backfield. Right, right. Uh, but they could be. I mean, how many hmm. points is it for like a unit of ten hormigons? The six. Too much. Yeah, they're, but they're, also they're terrible. Too, too much. Sixty points. That's actually a lot. That's that's um, yeah. sixty points for compared to forty points for like an infantry squad. A sure, guard but, infantry squad. I mean, yeah. you can get your forty point termagants if you want. That's true. It's not like they don't have options there. It's just like that's not what hormigons are specialized in. Right. Um, but usually, usually that's that's what I look for in troop choices. Um, what's the most you'll you'll spend like for a troop choice um, outside of the custodian's guard choice? But what's like the most you would spend for a troop choice? Like what's too much? Well, it kind of comes down to what Sean said too, though. Like, what is that doing? If it is literally just sitting in your backfield, then I don't think you put a full forty-man block of uh, cultists back there to do that, right? You're instead mm-hmm. using that unit to jump forward and shoot once or twice with the veterans of long war and stuff like that. You're thinking more offensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, if you're taking plague bearers, a full unit of that, your whole idea is it's never ever going to get removed ever, ever, ever. Um, in which case, you'll pay for that because it's a nice happy medium between. I can. This is like you know, like Sean was talking about earlier. I want to have control over variables. With that, it's extremely unlikely that something removes them. They're minus one to hit when they're twenty or more, right? You can make them even further harder to hit. Uh, they're just difficult to remove, so you'll pay the full price for it. And then look for your lethality somewhere else in your list. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you're guard, you probably are only paying for 10-man blocks because you're doing like a brigade. 
Um, and then you can bunch them up together because that's what your codex allows you to do to make it bigger units if you want to. Mm-hmm. So so w- what you're saying is, is if you want to buy troop choices for your backfield, you should spend as little points possible to keep your backfield set for the rest of the game basically i I just have a tough time so i mean i have a tough time generically answering that but i think that's Mm -hmm. more true than not so again like if you look at tau fire warriors is anyone loading up a full unit of fire warriors not unless their entire list is based around that right Mm -hmm. for the most part they're minimum on that because those roles like sean talked about again earlier are being fulfilled elsewhere so why are you taking fire warriors what do they do uniquely absolutely they're just troops and Yeah, no, they're just troops. They're they're your cheapest strength five kind of thing. I think it varies a lot from codex to codex. Um, you know, Jeff contrasted the Imperial Guard, you know, infantry squad with like the thirty man plague bearer block. Those two armies look want totally different results out of their troops. Um, right. They're not even looking for the same roles, really, uh, except in like the broad sense of scores objectives. Um, so I think it varies a lot codex to codex because some armies lean heavily on their troops. Um, my Taulis actually get like a large portion of their anti-infantry firepower out of their troops. Um, but plague bearers are not going to be killing infantry for you. They're, they're probably not going to be killing much of anything. So those roles you're filling are going to vary a lot depending on what the rest of your book can do. But you know, it's funny. And I agree with everything you said. I think it's, I think you could almost, and this is, I just literally came up with this idea, but it's probably a pretty inherent one, but I bet I bet you could almost rate a codex based off their troops, right? So like, yeah, Necron codex, their troops, stat line wise, not explicitly terrible, but a little bit too expensive, and their short range shooting, not durable enough, probably. So what are they doing? Everything kind of on a mediocre level, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's codexes with fantastic troop choices, like guard. Uh, the list goes on. And yeah. They perform very well. I, I think the troops are indicative of the rest of a codex. Like, poorly designed troops usually mean the rest of the book is poorly designed too, and sometimes you can get away with that for a little while if you have one really strong gimmick, but sooner or later it comes back around on you. Um, so, yeah, I would say, like, if you look at an army and say, these troops are bad, the rest of the codex is probably bad as well. Whereas if you look and say, like, these troops are good... It doesn't guarantee the rest of the book is we- is good, but mm-hmm. it certainly is some kind of indication. Um, the only book I can think of that has good troops but is otherwise lackluster is actually the Chaos Demons book. Um, because their troops are kind of like the only things worth taking in a lot of cases. Um, but like every other book with good troops, Guard, Tau, uh, Custodes a lot of armies like those are all armies that have good eldar. options in lots of other eldar yeah, yeah eldar are fantastic troops rangers and are amazing troops right yeah, yeah. Well, and and so are guardians and storm guardians and dire avengers are not that bad either yeah like yeah there aren't really any bad troops in dark eldar the same boat like all three of their troop choices are really good what's the third dark eldar troop choice racks witches and oh, racks. Cabulites. yeah okay yeah right ra- okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, you go. Know, racks Which are, are really incredible. Good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah they are. I didn't even uh, know they were a troop choice. Yep. Um, and so, like, yeah, I think Jeff really hit something on the the head there that like good troop choices often make a good book because hmm. that's where you start. You need command points to play Eighth Edition. You don't have command points unless you're bringing troop choices. And I challenge the listeners: tell me a codex. You know, counter my point. 
I'm, I'm that guessing has, that, a good codex that has bad troops. Yeah. Um, I I mean, my biggest stab at that would be like Space Marines because I, I'm kind of underwhelmed by scouts non-sniper are scouts. Not bad troops, my friend. By, by non-sniper scouts and tactical Marines. But like I said, it, yeah. I'd be reaching here anyways because I I love sniper scouts as troop choices. I, I think I've I've kind of cooled off on regular scouts. Yeah, um, really. But, I still but even I love then they're not bad. Time. Yeah. Yeah, they're even though they're not they're not that bad. Um, um, but yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right there, Jeff. Um, another interesting thing, and this is for ITC listeners. Um, so if you're an ITC listener, take a seat. A couple minutes, we're gonna talk about the engineer's secondary objective uh, mm-hmm. that just came out. Um, and I think that there's really two kind of units that can that can successfully score with that. That's really durable, tough slow-moving assault units, i.e. Bulgrin are a perfect example, um, and cheap, you what? know, cheap, uh, oh, yeah. So, so, so you Brandon... You Bulgrin as your engineers? So, Brandon Grant did this at Nova um, to reasonable success uh, last year, uh, or whenever he went to, whenever, yeah, last year when he went to Nova, uh, and what he'd do is, is the Bulgrin would just move up and spend two or three turns shooting, being durable, being his engineer choice, because they don't need to charge until turn four anyways, right? And if even if the Bulgren like like get that charge, they might get one or two charges off. Maybe die to the man with maybe one Bulgren left, and, and then just sit back and hold an objective. You know, as an in- engineer choice, like on turn yeah. six. Well, so it's, here's to me. I don't know. I think we could probably pummel that point you just made into the ground. But the more interesting point about engineer is that it's going to impact lists on the list design level. So if your list doesn't have the ability to get into a backfield and deal with something, every list has some unit. I mean, you're saying Bulgren, that's debatable, I guess, but let's take Brandon Grant's list and say, I don't know what he's facing, but it can't touch his backfield, doesn't have range shooting, doesn't have deep strike, it's, it, maybe it charges turn five or something and gets there. I pick ten guardsmen, and they just yeah. sit there and they yep. score your points. So if that's, you don't make a list yeah. that can do that, I look at your list and I go, okay, what objection am I doing? Uh okay, engineers, and it's just this uh, unit of five gray rangers, and they're just gonna sit back here and turn two and onward. I'm gonna score points. Yeah, yep. that's yeah, that's it, definitely gonna be a thing these days. Yeah, um, and, and troop choices are are gonna be the big targets for that specifically. Min troop, and choices. then conversely, potential. Yeah. You'll see guys who are not used to it, and they'll be like, "Oh, I've taken engineer every game." And then they're facing you know three wyverns and two basilisks, and they're like, "I guess it's this unit." It's like, "Well, thanks." Now you're yeah. dead. You actually just <laughs> lost three or four points. Yeah. I I don't I I definitely disagree with Pablo on the Bulgren thing. Um, then then the ones at Nova are work a little bit differently. One of the big things in ITC with engineers is if they make any close combat attacks, you don't get the point that turn. Um, so it's really easy to just touch one edge of that unit and deny your opponent a point. And I know a lot of people were perfectly happy to throw away a forty point troop squad in order to deny you one victory point. Yeah, and and. To be fair, it was Nova that Brandon was talking about. We, yeah. we obviously the the engineers, you know, for IT has been out for less time, um. So you might have a point there. I think it's worth looking into at least uh, if you've yeah, got like. I don't got, think like, this John, is the you're episode. Close. To you might have a point on. there. Okay. Anyways, yeah. Uh, <laughs> different rule ahead. sets. Different. You know, there might be something. Yeah. S- similar rule sets. Um, All right. Right. So, a little different, my friend. He- yeah, heavy support choices. So, um, so moved away from troop choices. Uh, now let's go to heavy support choices. And I actually don't generally don't like heavy support choices. 
Um, I think if, if you're going to take them, you'll take like one really good one if your codex has one. But overall, you're going to want to ignore them because they tend to be more on the expensive side. Um, well, but maybe what, you what, don't. Yeah, well, what, what do you guys think? What are your opinions on heavy supports as battlefield rules and picking them for your army? Go ahead, Sean. I mean, I already said I really like playing shooting armies. Uh, I take heavy support choices all the time. In fact, I think that is one of my most common battlefield roles. Um, because they usually are these long-range backfield shooting units that, for me, not only fill that role Jeff was talking about, like, you need something to sit in your backfield, you can't push everything forward, heavy support roles can often fill that because you have your, you know, shooty tank that is tough enough that your opponent can't just get rid of it, but also is going to be contributing to your army by sitting back there on an objective somewhere. Um... And they don't always have to be expensive. Like, you get your mortar teams and, you know, cheap little indirect fire units like that in a lot of books. Uh, but you also have more expensive options if you want to push upwards from there. Um, and I think that heavy supports are kind of the quintessential, like, immobile firing platforms in most cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it really depends. Again, codex to codex. But for me, for instance, uh, to use my own example, like, I recently dropped the three Firepike Aqualons from my Custodes list. Oh, mm-hmm. rip. Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean I'm never going to use them. It just means for right now, because I'm trying to kind of hone in on a, on a build for um, Broadside. Mm. I dropped them because they're really, really amazing. They're awesome, but they have some variables in there. So it's another unit that drops in and then needs to make a charge. And mm. if they don't make that charge, it's not like they're null and void or anything like that. They still have range 12 fire. That's pretty cool. But it's just something that I had... I was already doing with other units. And in place of that, for roughly the same cost, I have the Telemon Dreadnought, which is obviously oh, now a mainstay yeah. in most Custodes lists. And that's because it's got four shots at range 72 mm-hmm. that are specifically good against vehicles. And that's actually an issue that Custodes have, is very often they're spending two or three turns killing Chafe and lesser units while getting pummeled from exactly what Sean just described, which is like immobile platforms in the back. Um, whereas the Telemon gets around that. Mm-hmm. And this is a very important element to 8th edition. If you have something that shoots scary stuff, it attracts attention. The Telemon is tough 8 with a 2-up save and a 4-up invul, 14 wounds, and a 6-up feel in the pain. So very often, yeah. people look at it and say, and it might even be next to a banner that's minus 1 to hit, uh, they look at it and they say, well, fuck that thing, I guess I'm just taking the damage for a while, right? Um, whereas if you have a basilisk or a wyvern or or three mortar guys people don't look at it the same way as long as they can shoot it they probably will to get rid of it um Mm -hmm. your heavy support choice will attract bullets it will attract attention so it doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be super defensive but there needs to be some kind of element of that to it in my opinion so the the basilisk has tremendous range guard army in general just has a lot of chafe though so you can kind of cushion and hopefully push back the threats that would otherwise be hitting that unit uh, or they're, they're mortars, and there's just so many of them, and they're so cheap that it's like, yeah, you're going to kill some, but there's just more elsewhere, so go ahead and shoot them. Um, but for me as a Custodes player, this role was very important, because I'm going to be charging with nine Custodian Guard, Constantine Valdor, or Trajan, <laughs> and then, um, you know, in a lot of my lists I have the Orion or other things, stuff that's in your face, but then that uh, Teleman is sitting in the back, hopefully with a clear line of sight, uh, blasting your, you know, sp- surgically removing the things that threaten me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and another cool thing about heavy supports is this is where you look at. I, I kind of always like to add the heavy support last to my list um, to kind of shore up where where the weaknesses are, where what I need. 
um, like indirect fires is usually something I'll add in last just because I feel like I need to be able to hit something in a specific spot um, when I'm building my lists. Um, or like if you're taking like Devastator squads, you can fill round out your list with like some last cannons or or a Lehman Rust if you you know there's that's just how I always look at it. I don't I usually don't tend to build around heavy support choices. Um, they're usually just filler or or meta decisions. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, do you guys are there any codexes with bad heavy support slots? Uh, do you think GW is just doing it wrong with with or specifically bad heavy support units? Um, I think one thing Jeff mentioned that like your heavy supports are gonna draw attention. Um, one problem with some of, not necessarily all of, but some of the existing heavy supports is the ones that put out a punch but can't take it and have no defensive abilities. Um, you know, the Basilisk can hide out a line of sight or you can push it back with guardsmen. Um, but, um, something like the, you know, the Space Marine Predator or Devastators, like, mm -hmm. they tend to just get erased um and with devastators like oh you can put the banner near them so even when they die they still get to do their role and that's okay but like the predator especially right now there's a pretty good chance it dies before ever getting to shoot and like you just sort of like threw 160 points in the garbage because it has no def defensive abilities it's not particularly impressive firepower it is kind of just a shooting unit um and that is where i think the the heavy support choice can go wrong when they have no defensive abilities and they're not particularly good offensive compared to other support slots yeah and that's a i would say that's one of my only criticisms against eighth edition and we are getting better about it but like Things that are scary get shot, and this this edition is so killy, so very. It's exactly like Sean just said. Like, oh, a predator. Oh, you got a stratagem where they all shoot incredibly well. I'll remove a couple of them, and then you're like, that's my whole thing, and then it's just gone. Um, and I don't know that the answer is necessarily to make things more killily or durable, but it's specifically for space marines, that is the issue, right? Like, I have five devastators. They're pretty good, but what are people running with devastators these days? They're keeping them like min cost for heavy bolters and missiles. Mm -hmm. um, and even then it's like one or two in there so that they can just use a stratagem. Like they're just cheap. <laughs> that's yeah. their, that's their <laughs> shield. Feel like not... heavy support. Yeah. Well, because you, yeah, it's like, why take four heavy weapons in the squad when they're just going to get erased anytime anyone feels yeah. like shooting at them. Yeah. It, it, and I, I don't, uh, you see this a lot in forge world units. Um, I don't like Ugh. the mechanic of like when your unit shoots, it does something different. Like, like the, the um, stupid hmm. Venator, siege tank that space marines get or if it shoots you you're like minus one to hit because it oh, hit and connected yeah. with you but it's like a ultra expensive one shot strength bajillion gun oh yeah the... it's just you're gonna fire it twice you're gonna fire and connect with it like twice throughout a whole game if it doesn't die yeah i would say the cardinal sin of gw's weapon design is single shot high strength and ap guns that are on like bs3 platforms so it's like you know, two-thirds of the time you hit and two-thirds of the time you wound, which means if no one does anything to you, you connect with three shots a game. And that is presuming you never get degraded, your opponent has no penalties to hit, they're not in cover, they don't get a save, they don't have an invuln. Like, there's so many layers between a las cannon and actually affecting anything that it's really hard to justify it in a lot of cases. I would say an example of them nailing it out of the park, by the way, is the um, 
God, what's the assassin with the, the sniper? The, the Vindicare? Oh, the Vindicare. Yeah. Yep. So this mechanic could very easily be so boring, right? He just always hits, he always wounds, he always does damage. There still is a lot of dice rolls, but there's a lot of, like, if he doesn't move, then this happens. If he's in cover, then this happens. There's things mm-hmm. that, like, reward position ability and make it so much more interesting than just the guy hits on twos re-rolling, wounds on twos re-rolling, does damage. Yeah. And I thought more of that would, I mean, I think more of that would be excellent, and they're, you know, moving in that direction. So they, they just hit it way out of the park with the assassins, but that's a good example in my opinion. Uh, another thing that I, I really want to caution people on is on top of the one-shot, uh, the D6 damage weapons Ugh. are generally super unreliable. I think I think they did really well with uh, uh, the Aberrant, um, who does, abominant. I think, a minimum, Abominant, does a minimum, like, three damage or something. When he swings, the, the D6 Yeah, but I, we have to test against this, though, because I, I don't disagree with you, but I think if the game got completely flat numbers and, and you know, everything did three, everything did four, everything did D3 plus one, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. I I would think a little bit of the flavor is gone. I don't disagree that D6 damage is obviously all over the place, but I do like that element in Warhammer. I still enjoy that it's not a guarantee that things just do that. Yeah. It's I, I would actually say um the problem is what GW thinks a D6 does. GW seems to price D6 damage weapons as though they always deal five. Yeah. When the reality is they don't come anywhere near that. Unless like, you're an orc player. But yes. Well, yes. <laughs> um you know, orcs I think are their D6 damage weapons are much more appropriately costed. You know, the shock attack gun and stuff like that. Um but you know, you get so many cases where it's like, oh, I can either get a missile lamp launcher with damage D6, or I can get, you know, this other version of it that has flat damage 3. Technically, the flat damage 3 is slightly lower average, but I'll take it because it's so much more reliable. Yeah. Maybe Sean will, by the way. But I, think I mean, I most will. Most people actually and... take the D6 because they live in the world where they are rolling fives every time. Oh, well, I mean, I wish I lived in that world, but I don't. I live here over in the zone of twos, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, uh, I think I think there's definitely some room for improvement there. I don't think we need to beat the heavy support slot roll down too much more, especially because we had another one, arguably worse one, coming up soon. Um, but let's talk about elites. Uh, so I, I I feel like I have a big problem with elites right now, uh, hmm. and just the elite battlefield role in general. I don't think it's the worst battlefield role, but I feel like you can basically put every elite unit into three categories. They're either it's either the HQ light secondary battlefield role, and then and that's just a bunch of more eight characters, a bunch more HQ choices. Uh, it's your codexes or your army's linchpin unit, or it sucks. This just personally how I feel. Hmm. Um, whenever I've looked at an elite choice, it's either been like, oh, you could build an army, like, um, you, you, ten Sternguard, right? Uh, or uh, Hiveguard or elite choices? No, right? No, Wait. they're not. They're heavy support, they, are they? They are elites. I'm yeah, they're pretty elites. sure. So, yeah. so Hiveguard or elite choices. Well, um, but but there's in general like ter- all the Terminator variants are maybe not anymore. Terminators getting a little better. Um, but there's just a lot of really poor elite choices that just don't work. So I generally um, agree with you. I think, mm-hmm. again, where maybe we have to wait and see a little bit. The most recent example of the Genesir cult is chock full of incredible elites. And I think they did a mm-hmm. very good job with what the elite role could be, which is like fairly inexpensive support characters that do fun stuff. They like them yeah. together contribute towards an interesting dynamic as opposed to 
it's just another shooty guy or another assault guy, but he does it by himself. Like, that'd be kind of boring and stupid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you've got the Nexus, the Sanctus, you've got the Clamavus, you've got these, like, force multipliers, um, the Biologists, that they, they do different, or Biophage, excuse me, they do different things that are really interesting and in enhancing other elements of the army. But then it also feels cool because if you pick them off or take them out of position or something like that, a little bit of, like, the battle plan of your opponent falls apart. So it feels, again, more like a strategy game. Mm-hmm. Um, I will add that, to me, this was a home run for the Gene Circle, but I'm actually rather poo-pooing on the, home, the Gene Circle in general, but maybe that's a different episode. Wait, you're, you're, their early choices are great, but you're poo-pooing on them? The entire release I'm poo-pooing on. Oh. Yeah. I think the um, army's quite bad. The Codex is pretty bad. Really? Okay. Yeah. Hmm. That's another episode for sure. Yeah. Um, I would actually say the problem that Pablo has kind of, like, identified, and the reason that probably Jeff and I feel very differently from him on this, Pablo plays Imperial. Imperial armies have problems with legacy units, and that's what bloats their elite choices out into, like, 16 versions of the troop choice, but with, like, mm-hmm. a slightly different weapon choice. Because if you look at the, specifically the Space Marine Codex and its elite choices, they are hot garbage. <laughs> and even compared to the rest of the Space Marine book, like, not necessarily just bad, but also, like serve no purpose there are so many units and characters in there that just don't really do anything that like i feel that they suffer a lot from kind of like well we had veterans before and we still need to have veterans now Uh, they don't have any special rules but they can take two special weapons and that's basically good enough to add four more units because we need veterans and Primaris veterans and Primaris veterans and Phobos armor and Phobos Primaris veterans and Phobos Phobos armor. <laughs> and we'll go ahead and throw three more units in there that all have slightly different rules. Um, I mean, I think there are more elites choices in the Space Marine Codex than like two other Codex's entire unit count put together. It's ridiculous. Um, So when you do that, elites are garbage. And I think they just need to clean out a bunch of those. It's like, why do do command squads and veteran squads both exist for Imperial Guard? There's no reason. They're the same thing, but one of them is bad. Um, They need to clean up the elite slots. But that said, there are books like the newer ones, like Jeff was talking about the the Gene Steeler book and other stuff, where their design has pared it down into these sort of, like, wacky utility characters and also sort of the um, the units that have a very specific role that are good at one thing, like Abominance uh, or some of the Tau battle suits or stuff like that. Um, so... Some books have really good elites, some books have really bad elites, and it really just depends on what faction you're from, I think. Hmm. So, so what what about Eldar? Because you're you're more familiar with you're familiar with all the codexes. You're more familiar with codexes than I am. Um, but as I understand the Eldar codex, it has a lot of bloated elites and HQs too that just Craft don't do a lot right now. Or all the Eldar Craft together. World. So so not so not all the Eldar together. Um. um I would actually say Eldar have pretty good elites, all things considered. 
Um, okay. The Craft World's book has, you know, some melee units, some shooting units, a couple weird little characters. I kind of wish they had one or two more characters in their elite slot. Uh, but all in all, I actually think the Craft World's Codex, they have fixed up the elites a lot. Um, and a big part of that was the points changes from Chapter Approved. Um, okay. You know, Striking Scorpions going down to 55 and... Um, uh, the Shadow Spectres going down to 25 or 28 or whatever it is um, makes a huge difference in the viability of that slot. Um, so I think they're actually pretty all right. Hmm. It's because I don't really see them a lot, like like on the table. You don't see like Howling Banshees, Striking Scorpions, um, outside of well, the one player in San Diego, Wraith Guard and Wraith Blades. Here, you know, here's the um, secret. They don't necessarily mesh well with Yanari because there are better things in other slots, and Yanari ah. is all Eldar right now. Um, okay. If and when we see a change away from Yanari, you will probably see some Eldar Brigades because they can actually do a pretty solid build there. Um. So, so when you're... Uh... When you're looking at elite choice, obviously, just by the namesake, um, you should be spending a little bit more of a premium for elite choices. Um, do you think GW? Do you think that there's a more design space here, uh, or do you think they've kind of like? I guess that's you know that's a dumb question. Mm. Um, w- when you're looking at elite choices for your army lists, uh, think about the competitive lists you guys have been running. Uh, overall, have they perform overperformed or underperformed? Just in your personal lists. Um, personally, my elites are great. I mean, the Tau elites are just jam-packed with good stuff. Um, the Eldar tends to be not quite as exciting, but still has a lot of good things in it. Um, there are lots of armies with very good elite choices, I think. It's just, there are some of them where it is very bad. Yeah. I think the only time I ever specifically even look at what the role is, is if I'm trying to make a brigade. Yeah. And it's just generally accepted that with a brigade, you're going to have some bloat. Um... I don't usually find that to be necessarily in the elite choice. It's more about like, like a Terranid Brigade is kind of weird because you're like, well, I'm going to split up these Venom Thropes, I guess, and then <laughs> have Hive Guard or something like that. It's just, it gets a little bit interesting there. But again, they still do their role. Like, that's the nice thing is generally elites, I guess, outside of Space Marines, um, are like useful units that you don't take in mass there's not really somebody that's like i wish i had more elite slots for the most part there is of course examples of that i think of like some eldar lists with their characters and stuff like that sometimes do that and eldar like GSR don't even cool. have any elite characters though there's Ray only Sears, one it's bizarre warlocks but no nope those, those are hq the choices bone singer ah. it's the only eldar uh, elite character wow. um it's and and to Jeff's point, I think it's actually really weird that if you look at the detachments, you get way more elite slots than you do of anything else. Like the battalion gives you, I think three to like zero to five or something like that, and the brigade gives you like zero to seven or something stupid like yeah, that. Yeah, you get more elite slots then it might be because there's more elites than all the other roles. No, well, um, the, and the answer is because Space Marines have 10 billion elite <laughs> characters. That that literally is the reason. Um, that's Because there's like, there are no other books that have that, and there's no other reason for you to need that many elite slots. They just, they want you to be able to play the, the company Vanguard that took like three units of Stern Guard, four command squads, and, you know, two banner bearers. Hmm. I I think 
you're probably right, and this is a quick aside, quick aside, but I I theorize that it was also probably because of like imperial soup, um, because you yeah. know like the between the all the stuff the Inquisition could take, the assassins, all the random little elite characters in guard and space marines, um, yeah. that that if the because remember before Eighth Edition was designed to have mixed soup detachments like Imperium detachments, mm-hmm. um, I think that's probably why they increased the elites a lot so much. They're, you know, they're like, oh, this guy, he might want to take an assassin and, you know, uh, an inquisitor or not, uh, you know, an inquisition unit. And then, yeah. you know, stern guard. And, I don't know. Anyways. You know, it's actually the worst factor hmm. uh, role in the game. What? Fortifications. Oh, fortifications are so <laughs> bad. And they're coming out with good fortifications. They're gorgeous models and they actually are really, really good. Put mm-hmm. zero to one in a battalion. Put zero to two in a brigade. Yeah, the fact that you have to eat one of your three slots to take any fortifications at all is pretty punishing. It's not even like I I guarantee you without knowing I didn't talk to like Mister Games Workshop or something like that or Mrs. But uh, it's an oversight. It's not even like a design on purpose. It's just literally battalions came out and then they're like, oh fuck, there's a sky shield landing pad. Um, <laughs> yeah, you just take an auxiliary and you're like, okay. No. <laughs> Put it in the battalion. I'm telling you, man. Yeah, that's the way it used to be. You'll sell more, by the way. That's the other part. Lol. Also, (laughs) also stop making all the fortifications BS5 up and, like, giving them some massive, like, world shaker cannon that's like, it's 2d6 shots and you'll get one hit per turn. (laughs) Um, uh, So let's move on to fast attacks real quick. Uh, because as I was looking at this, I, I kind of wrote them off as the worst battlefield role. Um, no, mm-hmm. fast attacks. But, uh, you know, that's obviously an opinion. Um, yeah, that's where we talked about the piranhas. We did it. Yeah, we I talked love piranhas. Troops, heavy support, elites. Okay, fast Pablo. attack. Okay, well, you know what? Br- briefly, real quick. Sean, you want to just repeat everything you said? I'll just repeat everything I said, and then we can. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think. I would say that fast attacks tend to be your least expensive slot in most cases, um, because they, den- they do tend to be those like quick, speedy, little, low-cost units, uh, and because there's an incentive to kind of like minimize them down, it's like you don't want to buy five land speeders in a squad because that just means you're gonna have five dead land speeders. Um, but they're often in kind of a weird place because of some of GW's design philosophies on things. Here's a trivia for you. Name the Terranid fast attacks. Raveners. Spore mines. Don't don't play spore mines. Uh, Harpies. No, they're probably flyers now, huh? No, we don't have flyers. Yeah, they're flyers. Um, Well, then they're fast attack. Doesn't matter. Nobody takes them. Do do the flying Tyranid warriors still exist? I don't remember whether they got removed. Shrek's do not exist. Okay, Um, I couldn't remember whether they got vanished entirely or were still an index thing. I think they're in the index. Yeah, so uh, it's like okay. some kind of like technically you can take them, but it's it, that's the yeah. dark side of Warhammer that I don't even delve in. Yeah, and it, I don't even think the flying rippers are in the index anymore. I think they're gone entirely. Wait, is the Demite Karen a fast attack choice? Yes, uh, it laughably, is the, it is the only monstrous creature in the fast attack cho- slot, I believe. But but it used I think it was like six inches. They can jump over stuff or something. It's a I don't know what faster. it does now. It's Sorry. slightly better now. Nobody knows what it does now. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I when I was looking, when I was trying to remember, because Jeff brought up kind of like a great point by accident, is that I was trying to remember the fast attack 
choices for a lot of um, codexes, and I don't, I can't think of any. And the ones I do think of became flyers, right? And so, <laughs> so they became their own battlefield role. Um, I think there's definitely room for improvement here, and I, I actually think that if you give every codex just a good mobile techie fast attack choice, I, I think every codex would just get better across nope. the board. Um, yeah, they they have what are supposed to be those units. That's your land speeders, piranhas, chicken walkers, all that kind of thing. It's just most of them have such a poor design behind them that they never get used. So, so here here's a here's a quick question for you guys. I think one of my patrons going to answer or going to ask, um, how much should you pay for fast movement versus uh like shooting Ugh. and lethality? Like what what's what's too much on on like a move 14 unit? That depends entirely on what the rest of the unit does. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you have your your Praetor jet bikes, which move 14 and are like 80 points each or something crazy like 90. that. Yeah, they're, they're incredibly each. expensive, but they're worth it because they have a really good gun and really good melee, which multiplies the value of that speed. Uh, and, com- you know, on the other hand, you have like Scourges who move 14 inches and are like 12 points each because they, they don't actually they die like the moment anyone thinks about their existence. Um, so it depends a ton on like what else the unit is capable of. And the more you can do, the more movement is worth. Okay. So uh, what about units like, like land speeders or, um, or units basically that, that are really mobile, have almost no damage output and are frail, um, no. but they might have like something, cute or or unique well i mean that's kind of what we were talking about earlier with like i mean those units actually can hit fairly hard um Mm -hmm. you know land speeders can carry a a pair of multi-melters i believe if you really want to shell out for it um but it's not worth it because they'll die instantly um and that's the problem is that those units are expensive and expendable and that's not a good combination yeah. Um, more like that, the palace tank that we were talking about earlier, like they need to have some defensive utility or other stuff built into them to make them worth taking. Because otherwise you just take that long range heavy support unit that shoots its multi-melta at 48 inches instead, and it does the same thing, only it doesn't die on turn one every game. Hmm. All right. Uh, finally, HQ choices. There's billions of them they're all over the place uh what are when you're looking at adding hq choices to any of your lists um do you pick them first or or do you kind of like you know pick them last because they are they are mandatory just like like troop choices i'm fact, i don't think with with the exception of knights I, I don't think you can actually build a a good list certainly not a competitive list without hq choices i take that offense to that wrong. i play assassins you play assassins. Yeah. Okay, fair. Twelve assassins. Yep. And he feels personally uh, attacked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I think our HQ choices are where you have to start, not just because they're mandatory, but also because like they fulfill a a very fundamental role in a lot of armies in defining what you're capable of. Um, I would say auras. Look at what those auras are and how you're going to use them, because that's really big in Eighth Edition. Yeah, I would say that also uh, when you're looking at HQ choices, look at how they affect the phase where your army works best at. Yeah. Um, so like Space Marine, gen- in general Space Marine HQs that that shoot well, 
um, <laughs> if they could, if you did have actually have them, do a lot better than Space Marine HQs that have like close combat weapons. Because in general, I feel like the Space Marine Codex, with the exception of a few fringe characters, um, kind of lacks in the close combat. They don't have like a crazy Gene Stiller cult unit. You know, they don't they don't have like like aberrants, abominance, and things like that. Um, so uh, specifically to Eldar, look for HQs that that fortify your best phase. So like Eldar psychers are are some of the best HQs in the game because the Eldar book is kind of revolves around the psychic phase, and that's kind of like that book's specialty. Um, so when you look at your codex, look at uh, what HQs bring to the table for your codex to make it better. That's where I start usually. Um, I I think it's also I think it's also um, cool to look at. HQs that, that have a good melee presence, um, infantry HQs that have a good melee presence. Um, if you're playing a lot of ITC or if you play it at frontline gaming events, uh, just because ruins are common and, and those HQ choices can easily hide in in your gun lines, uh, in buildings, behind other units, deep striking down, uh, and just kind of get into those little places that other big units can't um, and do lots of work. So that's, that's generally what I do. I would also, just to tag on to that, say... Um... That, that melee presence is very useful because of counter charge. Like, if your gun line gets charged, you need something to kind of break that up. And HQs can often provide counter charge that can't be shot off the table. Um, <clears throat> so, Jeff, uh, did you have anything to, to throw on there? Or? Uh,. I don't know. It's it, um, for me personally. I I do not do list design. Like it sounds like a lot of. Uh, I mean, if you guys do it that way, I I always like HQs are usually the centerpiece models for me. They're like the coolest thing. They're the reason I'm collecting the army, anyways. Or I'm excited about them. I don't like look at my list and go. I don't like thumb to the HQ and be like, all right, well, which one of these guys is going to fulfill my role of like? It's just like they're fucking ballers, generally speaking, right? Like I I took. <laughs> Trajan because he's just amazing. He's fun. Then they lowered him in price. Who baby? And before that, I was taking Swarmlord because I'm not going to make a list without Swarmlord. Yeah, and it wasn't. And like I, I like most often HQ is easy too because I mean there's some shitty HQs out there, but then I generally don't get excited about them. Like they, it has to be that they're really cool and they're playable, right? But then there's like this bottom tier th- threshold as well that for me a competitive list has probably like two battalions or something like that like you want command points mm-hmm. so do i get really fired up about engine seers you guys i don't <laughs> i really don't but there are 30 points and they fulfill that battalion that i want um yeah but i also don't write a list without call because reroll everything aura is amazing but also it's just one of the most gorgeous models you can ever see and i love him from seventh edition um so that's kind of how i did i'm collecting uh black legion now because that abaddon model is fucking bawling out of control it's insane how yeah. stupid is it that his sword is strength five? It's a fucking <laughs> demon that was around. It, it suggested it's the first murder. Okay, it's literally been around thousands of years. It's in in a sword and it's strength five. So yeah, but it's it does stupid D3 as shit. Damage. And the rest of them is so amazing. No, <laughs> oh, I don't even want to get on D three damage on characters. Yeah, what's <laughs> it? We, we're hoping for some upgrades there with his new data. I know shit, the, I the, the release was so funny, right? They're like, in here, he needed some buff, and it's like plus one wound. We're like, okay, yeah, but what about the damage, bro? And they're like, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really GW in a nutshell, right there. Is sort of like we'll wait and see, and then I'm sure behind the the scenes there's some guy going fuck, 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 fuck. We forgot to increase his damage. Yeah. Uh, the, day one errata. His damage is actually D6, not D3. Hmm. 
<clears throat> Jeff alluded to something that I've had a problem with HQ choices as well, uh, and that's just how many bad named characters there are. Mm, uh, it, it, yeah, I want to point specifically towards the Badab worlds, Forge world um, oh, characters. Yeah. They, they've got like thirty named characters in one book, uh, and they all have the sort of blah 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 smiter, and it's like strength four, D three damage, four attacks. Mm-hmm. And he gets Pablo, real ones. I know you're a space marine guy, but I'm sorry. Until you play Terranids and you don't know the travesty that is named characters, <laughs> I can't even begin to sympathize with you. Uh, you're right, Jeff. You're, Jeff, it's... don't worry. They removed all the Tyranid name characters. You don't have to worry about that anymore, <laughs> dude. <laughs> so, so um, uh, what do you think? Because named characters are are probably hard to design. Right, we, you know, yeah. we didn't design this game from scratch. Um, I imagine that there's a lot more to it than just simply designing just any other unit, uh, right? You got to worry like copyright laws and and a bunch of stuff, maybe stuff we don't know about. But they could do. I feel like they could do better than what they're doing now, just well, in general. I mean, Ford World better. Is, yeah, Forge World is terrible at designing rules. Like, let's just say it. Um, but the other half of that problem is let me let me spell out for you the fluff of literally every space marine character in the world. He is a strategic genius who is the best fighter ever, and he never gives up. That is every goddamn space marine who's <laughs> ever been written. Some are older than others. Yeah, because they didn't that's give true. Up. Yes. Um, and the problem is when you've already set your baseline for like, here's what a power sword is. Here's what a power fist is. Here's how many attacks these guys get base. You can't really go too far beyond that without completely obviating every other character other than that one super good guy. And you can't, you know, there's not actually enough room in the stat line to change thing all that much. So it's like, yeah, this guy's plus one strength. That's where the like unique auras, unique abilities is more interesting for me. Sure, and I would that. say that's the way to go. The problem is when everyone's aura is like gain back command points because you're a strategic genius, or you know feel no pain six up because you never give up. Then like there's no interest to it. Well, that's not uh, the ones I'm talking about. That's what I'm saying. Sure, pre deployment just... stuff, post deployment stuff. How unique would it be? Like this guy on turn five or, or more, he has this special thing that happens because he set up for that. Like you can get pretty creative with it. I think you can go. Sure. For there's and absolutely. I think there's room to do that. I think that that is just more difficult than GW or especially forge world tends to like look into things. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, like let's, let's take a look at like Marnius Calgar. The, the new primaris guy is kind of like, what's interesting about him. Extra Here's wounds. the secret. It's nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I agree. Um, this is actually one of those rare times where I think 7th edition and 6th edition, to an extent, was a little better than 8th than edition in this regard. Uh, because I remember things in 6th and 7th edition that characters could do that were so over-the-top weird and bonkers, like Mind Shackle Scarabs. Mm. Uh, there was <laughs> Forge World characters that could deep strike, you know, three units. There were Forge World characters that gave your, all your rhinos, like, a flat 5-up invuln or flat 5-up feel no pain. Yeah. Um, like every rhino in your detachment. Uh, you know, th- there was just a lot of really random, cool, you know, unique auras and things in 7th edition. Um, and then they took them all out uh, kind of to like streamline and standardize everything in 8th edition. Uh, and it's been two years now and they haven't released a named character that's caught my eye in terms of uniqueness well, so far. 
Um, I think I, I mean Harkin World Claimer was the, what the last one that they released. <laughs> yeah, and he was, you know, okay. Is um, is he though? <laughs> no, he wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and and part of the problem here is like you know th- these are all Forge World characters you're thinking of, and Forge World A hasn't had a rules designer in what a year and a half here and like i feel for them but that means that things are not going to move forward and also forge world has been intentionally a lot more conservative with their design which is good in general um they they realize that they struggle to produce balanced rules so they've just been more careful about things after the malefic lord yeah Um. well (laughs) yeah it's not to say they're doing perfect but they're they're at least no longer releasing malefic lord level nonsense. Yeah, uh, I mean GW too, right? They like I brought up the mind shackle scarabs as an example, um, but they also had you know like the doom of Malentai and you know the red terror, a bunch of other cool named characters. No, those are like fifth edition guys. Oh, were they? I, yeah. I remember. Yeah. Oh no, well, yeah, you're, you're thinking you're at, way and back. I don't disagree. I want more of that. The balance they're trying to strike. Is they don't want uh, too much rules bloat. They're they're really afraid of that. So yeah, yeah. Um, I don't agree with it personally, and I actually really enjoy exactly what you're describing. But that's why you're seeing that being restrained right now. Yeah, I I believe. I, I mean, and it might be the right way to go. Um, hmm. I just think named characters. If you're gonna put rules bloat, named characters is where you put it. Yeah, I think there's a middle ground to be struck. Like, you can have named characters do things that are, like, truly unique in the game, and I think they should be where that sort of thing occurs, um, but that it, that's more difficult to design. Like, it takes extra work to balance something like that, uh, and they do have to kind of, like, pick and choose where they put their effort in. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I've got Lord of Wars and Flyers um, next up, but I think we're going to skip those unless you guys have anything in particular. We're coming up on two hours. Can no, can I, I just say, I think Lords of War shouldn't be in the game. Mm. I don't think 40k should have that scale of stuff in the kind of battles that they want to be running with it. Um, because I just, I, I'm of the opinion that knights shouldn't be part of the game. They should be part of the, you know, other larger scale games like Epic Armageddon and stuff like that. Jeff? I love my big robots and my big monsters, but at the same time, it's impossible to look at the Castellan and not think that that is making the game worse. Yeah. And it's like someone pointed out, like, it's hard to balance a system that handles both a Grot and a Castellan and have that system scale properly. Yeah. Um... I I think think you guys make really good points. I also, I'm like Jeff, I love my big robots, um, I do too. It's just like I think they should be in a different game. I love um, big robots, and I want them. I want them to make a a different game about big robots. So, so do you think that that in general, just anything with with the like Guillemin, for example, or Magnus or Mortarian, because um, they are also Lord of War options. But I, I feel like they don't get lumped into the same category as like Stompas and and you know, Baneblades and stuff. Guillemin could just be a very expensive HQ choice. Magnus and Mortarian are kind of like pushing the border, but like they're more like a Riptide than they are a Knight. Um, So like you could probably work with that, but it's the big guys and it's especially the fact that like they have to design these models that ignore all the rules in the game. It's like how many things does a Knight just completely bypass? Um, and, And that's I think part of the issue is like when you have like 
these units where all of their rules about how are how they break all the rules, then it's sort of like, well, why is this even in the game if it, this rule never applies to anything? Hey, so, not to be rude, I, Sean, totking uh-huh. about opinion, they're never going away. So number one selling model. I know so. they're they're how they much time sell do you want to super spend well. Talking about this, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like world peace as well. You guys, do you want to talk about <laughs> world peace for a little while? Sure, or? actually, I got some thoughts on this. That, I uh... don't, Sean. It was a trick. <laughs> ah, damn it. You know so, my one weakness talking about myself. Uh, when picking your Lord of War um, for a list, right? So to kind of go back to the main topic, um, what percentage of points is too many points, no matter what it does, right? Like, I, obviously, we've seen, like, 2,000-point World of War with all the hole in the world, all the shooting in the world. It's absolutely get blown out because, obviously, 2,000 points on a single model in a 40K game is not actually good. Um. So where's the where's the percentage limit there? So it's obviously not 600 because the Castellan's everywhere. I actually think that Castellan is pushing the top end of what you can pay. I think if you're paying a thousand for a Lord of War, the other thousand points of your list is not going to be enough unless that guy is like incredibly crazy good. Um, right. If the Castellan were you know 20 percent more expensive and 20 percent more effective, I don't think you'd see it on the table. Yeah. So 600 points. So if you're designing Lords of War... Six, so- 700 points is, like, where you top out at, because otherwise, like, you just... You can't hold the ground. You you, you won't win the points game. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably fair to say of, of anything, right? So so if you have, like, 10 units of... Pal- or a unit of 10 Paladins in your Grey Knight or, mm-hmm. or Mixed Imperium list, like, that's probably... That might go somewhere, because it's, like, 400 points. But if you have two units of 10... So you're looking at like 800 points of Terminators. That's probably mm-hmm. too much of, of anything. Um, and there there might be exceptions to that. I, I don't know. I, uh, maybe Magnus and Mortarian might be an exception to that because if you have both of them. But even then, well, Magnus and Mortarian lists aren't like blowing up the top tables. No, but we've seen like triple knight lists do quite well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's obviously a lot of factors going into it. But I think like for a single model, like 700 points is probably where you top out. All right, and then uh, Reese said something funny about flyers uh, that I wanted to just kind of pose to you guys. Uh, so it, it's funny that flyers are even in the game at all, uh, because in 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 our opinion, Reese and myself, uh, they don't they 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 fit in similar worlds like Lord of Wars, and that they don't really feel like they belong. Um, you know, it's like a Eldar flyer, and the way flyers work in like the real world. Um, <laughs> Is basically they just fly over, they shoot one thing, and then they just keep flying, and, and then they make a pass, and then they come all the way around. But generally, by that time, usually like the battle should be over, right? Um, and, and obviously we're in 40k, and this is all completely different. Uh, but the reason why this was brought up in the first place was because it's really silly to me that flyers can move block, uh, and, and do kind of some of the things that they shouldn't be able to do, uh, in the game. And 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 I think it's kind of poor rules design. Um, so, like, uh, we'll just go with the Flyers being able to move block, because I think it's the biggest culprit. Um, it, a Flyer clearly shouldn't be able to stop you from being able to move over it, move over its base, right? Like, I, I get that, that the game is trying to be simpler, but it just it just doesn't make sense from uh, the way a model performs and how it, it it's perceived and, and how the rules reflect that perception. Um, you know, because it's flying in the air, you should be able to just walk under it and keep going. Uh, but you can't. Um, that being said, if you're adding flyers to your list, until that rule gets changed, they're absolutely gold 
Uh, and I think people should take flyers whenever they can if you're if you if you've got good flyers in your list in your codex. Yeah, I don't know. Flyers are in a weird place. I'd rather see flyers in Lords of War. Um, I think they are more functional and like yeah move blocking makes no sense but there are so many things in this game that make no sense anyways that that's true. It doesn't bother me in the slightest it's like why can't i walk onto the flyers like why can't i walk under the night <laughs> it's like yeah that guy could like stomp on me that's called close combat i'll take those 12 casualties uh i still want to walk through the night wouldn't um, that be interesting yeah, it's it, it gets into a lot of issues and the whole like, well, a flyer would just pass over you. I don't know. How long does a round last? Is it a minute or an hour or a day? Why would you it's fall not back clear. and you shoot? Yeah, there's it's all the all the sort of like this that? makes no sense right. stuff is like, I don't even consider that like the game already makes no sense. The world makes no sense. I'm not also, worried it's, about it's that. A, uh science fiction world so it's just it begins to be really funny when people are like i don't know why is this thing working like you want to start that path you want to start asking what what works and doesn't work and no you you're absolutely right um but there are there are like certain limits right like there's levels of verisimilitude right like like, uh, by that argument in a nutshell you could rattle guys and say like well then a scout squad should be able to charge a flyer because you know whatever who cares it's science fiction I mean, you ever um, seen a warlord tight not they be able used to, to be able to. Fence, they the used to. You're right. Um, yeah. <laughs> you ever seen a warlord titan literally not be able to step over a fence? Yeah. It's in the game. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. You're right. Um, so uh, that that kind of little rant aside, uh, flyers are amazing in general um, until they're unless they're just that bad, you know. Um, but some of them are good. Yeah, I my defense a, I of even of the ridiculousness good. of move blocking and stuff is I still prefer those kind of mechanics in the game. Like I understand flyers? like the justification of the theater of creativity in our mind and all that shit, but like move blocking as a flyer makes it more interesting than literally it's just a thing that shoots. Yeah, because otherwise it's just like I paid 160 points and now I have four las cannons per turn. And it's and harder like, to hit, and do, it moves around. Do do I even need to put it on the table? You don't have the guns to kill it. Just I I bought six of them. I declare that I have twenty four las cannons in my army, and they hover in the phantom zone. Yep. Okay, that that is also a good point. It, I think it is important for a model to have a physical presence on the table in some some aspect. Yeah, and as soon as you get into that, then you you get into all the other weird stuff. And like, do we really want to go to back to like dog fighting from the, you know, <laughs> oh, no. death from the skies? Yeah, see, that's the alternative. I didn't mind the flying off the table. I thought that was unique and cool. I I actually was kind of surprised that they they changed the flying off the table thing the way they did. Uh, I admittedly like I kind of get it. It's like a memory issue and other stuff, but it was just it was an interesting choice. Uh, I I don't really want to go into all the the nitty gritty of what it means here. Yeah. It's one of the areas that I actually thought seventh did it better. I thought fly in seventh was really interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Flyers are weird. So what about units with the hover keyword? So, so like you got like your fly supersonic guys that can never land. Um, then you have your hover keyword, like generally space ring stuff is what I was thinking of, mm-hmm. uh, where the Imperium stuff, but do you think, that more flyers should have that keyword, uh, or or it should be widely used, or maybe other keywords that that kind of do a similar thing. Like if you if you uh, shoot a flyer 
and degraded a certain way, it has to start hovering at that point? Or or do you think it needs any of that? I actually kind of wish fewer of the Imperial Flyers had hover. I know it's kind of their gimmick, but I think that it detracts from the uniqueness of the, the Flyer role and it's sort of the way they perform. Because, like, everyone knows that, like, Flyers are all about, like, turning arcs and they're very fast, but they're limited in where they can go and you can kind of outmaneuver them. And then the caveat to that is, like, the Imperial Flyers can just do whatever the fuck they want. Hmm. They can't turn twice. Unless they do, when they go into the hover mode, and they can turn an infinite number of times. Paul, I'm going to be honest with you. This feels like the end of the show, by the way. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, Once mm. we start talking about <laughs> hover and how much time we've spent thinking more things should have it, I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that's it. If you guys, if you guys like this topic and you guys want to hear more and you guys want to bother me a little bit more, you can always go to frontlinegamingpdpop at gmail.com as my email. You can also sign up for our Patreon patreon.com slash chapter tactics uh we have a nice messenger chat where this kind of long tangent talking stuff happens all the time um so let's go and get into some quick uh listener or patron questions uh first is mr damien uh can you go into alternative uses for roles uh such as using things like orc commandos for deep strike engineers or king of the hill king of the hill units or recons uh and then i'm just gonna make this brief Are, are there any units that you both use that um they kind of break their mold uh, when you use them as a role and kind of catch people off guard? Um, quick answer, stealth suits. Anything with alternate deployment like that is fantastic for like weird utility purposes like that. Unit that catches people off guard? Is that what the question is? Uh, units that, that kind of break their role uh, and kind of their perceived role on the battlefield that you use um, to catch people off guard. Like a shooty unit that's actually surprisingly good in melee or, or something like that. Uh, one that I'm learning and having fun with is literally the Orion Flyer for Custodes because <laughs> it actually has hover, so it, it can just plant and shoot and people don't count on that. But also it's got like 1,400 points of Custodes inside of it, so sometimes it flies 60 inches and then character snipes, and now it's just there and you know that if you don't deal with it right now, it's going to offload death. <laughs> it's fun. And it can claim objectives too. Can it? Can things with Hover do that? Yep. It's a Lord of War, not a Flyer. The Orion's a Lord of War? Yep. Is one it, of my buddies, I thought it was a Flyer one as of well. my bu- No, it is a Lord of War. One of my buddies is going to be running a triple Orion list. Triple Orion list? Yeah, that was my response as well. Uh, so, uh, friend's Damien... a fool. <laughs> he is, uh, yes. Uh, Damien asked another good question. Um, what what makes or breaks a unit for you? Is it is it just the points cost, the usability, the requirements you need to take it? Um, ultimately, like in a nutshell, what's the the number one factor that you find to, to just not take a unit? Ugh. Um, does it do something my army needs? It doesn't matter how good you are if you're doing something that I don't need in that army. Was well, Lord of War a keyword? No, it's it's battlefield. It's a battlefield role. Yeah. Well, it doesn't it's have the fist. It. I'm looking at the sheet right now. It's the yeah. It should be in the top corner. Mm-hmm. It's top got the corner. fist, not the like stupid little wing thing. Oh, it's symbol. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's it is a fist. Yep. Yep. Never mind. It's weird. Forge World does this a lot. Since the the Marauder Bomber is also a Lord of War, not a Flyer. 
Yeah, but they also have like Thunderhawks and and the the stupid giant Space Marine one, sure. the bigger Thunderhawk. All of yeah. which ru- obey the rules for Lords of War, not flyers. They are not mm-hmm. bound by like tabling when you're out of other units and all that kind of weird stuff. So to take a single Orion, do you have to take an auxiliary? Uh, super heavy auxiliary, yeah. Uh, it doesn't cost you a command point, does it? Nope. No. Then I have not cheated. Carry no. on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what about you, Jeff? When when you're, you know, choosing a unit for any of your army lists, what what's usually the most common factor for not picking it? Is it like it's too expensive? Is it not usable? Are the requirements to take it too much? Is it too cute? Um, I mean, I play to win, so I guess if it literally is just bad, I I, I don't know how to answer this question cleverly. Like, uh, there are some models that are so cool, but I will just not take them because they're just so bad. I think a lot of the Adeptus Mechanicus and Terranus Codex can can talk about that. Um, but as long as it's like relatively pretty good, and if it's just that cool of a model, I'll, I'll just have to take it. Like the new Obliterators, they're just really cool. So I'm going to have mm-hmm. three of them in all my lists. Uh, the Greater Possessed, I'm probably going to have to have that guy with the like long sword arm, because he's just such a cool model in every list. And I don't think they're super particular amazing good, but um, I'm going to make them work. So uh, how do you gauge how many models to bring in a specific unit uh, after you've decided that the unit is going to go in your army? um, It depends a lot on what you're trying to get them to do. Um, You know, like troop choices are easy to minimize because you want to take a lot of them. Uh, but some other units you really need to like bring a large number of models to maximize buffs or something like that. Um, it, it depends a ton on what that unit is out to do. Hmm. Kind of, you guys I ever kind watch of... Mr. Robot? No. There's a scene where in order to like get into this mega exclusive kind of world controlling organization, uh, there's almost like a fever dream hallucinogenic scene where they're being asked questions that don't seem to have any single answer. <laughs> I feel like that's what this is. It's like when determining a unit, how many is it? And why is the answer pair tree? And I'm like, well, yeah, it, the and, fuck and, is the unit? And what is it doing? Like it, it's not about the number. It's what is the unit doing? Yeah. And, and I think, I think this is one of those weird things. Cause, cause a lot of these patron questions are very similar to this. And I've been skipping a few of them. Uh, it, they're all, they're all definitely very subjective and, uh, based off of what you want to do specifically so they're very very difficult to answer um so i know a lot of you guys are probably want your question to be answered um but there's just like jeff said there's just really you know no real decisions they're really hard to answer so here's here's a way to try to attempt to answer it because this happens in starcraft a lot too people are like i'm having a tough time with metalists how do i beat them and there's no there's so many questions you have to ask before that to even get close to giving useful advice like what race are you playing what's the situation Uh, what level are you what economy are you utilizing like there's just so much going on Mm -hmm. so i would i would encourage people especially if they're asking pretty entry-level questions like that don't concern yourself too much with like how many to take play the and i know this sounds patronizing i don't mean it that way play the game and experiment because it's it goes army to army it goes codex to codex and it goes unit to unit and there's no actual one-way answer for all these questions. Like, I'm not going to be able to tell you how many troop choices to take, because what is your troop choice? What are you trying to do with it? Like, there's so many different ways to satisfy these answers that 
the honest answer is experiment, play with it, and then talk to people like on the Facebook fan page, the Patreon page, various different places, and ask more specific questions like, hey, I'm a Necron player. <laughs> is it Immortals or Warriors? And if so, how many do I take and should I be aggressive or defensive with them? Now I can answer that question. Yeah. I, and just to slightly tag onto that, I would say look at other people who are building similar lists to you and what they're taking and ask them why. Like if, if it is that Necron, it's like, oh, he took 20 Warriors why that many and why 20 you know yeah. why warriors or why five immortals or why nine immortals um you know there are reasons why people make those specific choices but they're they are very specific to a given unit yeah and then uh one final thing is um you can always just do the math if if you you know if you want to kill a, a specific unit like five scouts you you say this unit i want this unit to kill five scouts every game you just take that many models to be able to kill five scouts consistently or whatever you need to. Maybe you need to put a captain next to him or whatever. Uh, but yeah, some simple math usually goes a long way there. Uh, and then final patron question, just for fun. Jeff, how do you stay so handsome? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I spend quality time with intelligent people of like-minded interests like Pablo and Mr. Abuse Puppy here. And it keeps me youthful, happy, and fulfilled. Don't spend quality time with me, guys. <laughs> Stay ugly. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm not even sure how to take that advice. <laughs> Just joking. Uh, if you would like to spend some quality time with people on the podcast, I am. we are flying Sean out to the Throne of War GT yeah. in Honolulu, Hawaii. So nice. if you're going to be in Hawaii uh, around June, mid-June, um, you can come say hi to us. Or if you're going to the Throne of War GT, come say hi to us. Uh, we're so close to our Facebook goal. Um, we're about 80 patrons away. I know that that sounds like a big number, but at the rate we've, you know, I've been going and how, how many of you have, have wonderfully given us money for the podcast. I feel like we'll hit that in a month or two. Um, and once we hit 200 patrons, we're going to start flying uh, out a co-host every three months or every quarter um, to specific uh, large majors that aren't the prime majors like Nova, Adepticon, the LVO. And it, uh, the goal there would be to, you know, bring tournament coverage, personal intimate tournament coverage onto the podcast to talk about it, and then more community outreach and stuff too. Uh, I know you guys want Jeff or Val or Falcon or Sean, maybe even myself, to come out to your events, um, and I think that's a great way to use the patron money is to bring people out there and have the patrons vote as well. Um, so, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sign up, tell your friends. If you're a TO uh, and, and you're, you want one of us to come out, you know, maybe let your community know. Um, to sign up for the Patreon, and then we can hopefully get that going. Uh, that's always been one of my big dreams. Um, don't forget to join the Patreon. We're giving away the Shadow Sphere box this month. Uh, the Facebook group is awesome. Also, go to FrontlineGaming.org, buy stuff from the secondhand shop, check out In the Finest Hour, and check out Jeff's new show, Deadpan Diaries. It's classic vintage depth. It's hilarious, uh, and it's really real and raw. I like it. Yeah, thank you. It's on Control TV and YouTube. Thanks so much, you guys, for the love and support. You guys are the best, and have a good one.